Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, film journalist Travis Crawford. That probably cemented the idea for me that it's not necessarily important where you live. It's more important to do something you want to do from anywhere. Um, and again, San Francisco's great, New York is great, but you know, if you don't have the money, you know, I've said something in recent years, I may be poor, but at least I'm going to be poor my way, <laughs> you know, and I think that that's easier to do if you're living a little bit off the grid. Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here we interview artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. We can be found along with past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher under Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral two. You can find photos and more about our guests on the Fun to Know Podcast pages at Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and would be delighted if you'd take a moment to leave a review of the show on iTunes, any of those platforms, or just send me a note with your thoughts through Podcast at gmail.com. I've got a few interviews in the can and more lined up for the fall, so check back soon, and thanks again for listening. Just a quick announcement before today's show. I'll be the instructor of a new class starting on September 11th at Fleischer Arts Memorial in Philadelphia. It will run over five Mondays and is titled Musicians vs. the State, Music in Times of Protest. And we'll be looking at six documentaries chronicling musicians who found themselves at odds with their own governments, including films about John Lennon, Nina Simone, Fela Kuti, Brazil's Tropicalia scene, Paul Robertson, as well as a film looking at the clandestine musical world of Iran. It's a great batch of films. I fill you in on some of the film's background, and afterwards, there's always a lively discussion. I invite you to check out more about the class. There's just a few seats left at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R dot O-R-G. Now on to today's conversation with film journalist and programmer Travis Crawford. In the 1990s, I began seeing Travis's byline pop up in assorted magazines, and over the years he has written for publications including Film Comment, Filmmaker, Fangoria, and increasingly in the liner notes of archival DVDs. Currently, he writes regularly for the UK publication The Calvert Journal. Travis is always intelligent and passionate writing, often about films that mix genre conventions with exploratory filmmaking, has made his byline worth seeking out. For me personally, his biggest impact was made in his years as a film programmer at the Philadelphia Film Festival, whose highlight was always the sidebar Danger After Dark, a series of films curated by Crawford that brought some of the wildest and most thrilling films to the festival and promoted the work of major directors who had otherwise been underrepresented. Film is a major passion of mine, and we haven't had a guest to discuss film with on the show since we had real black cinema's guru Mike Dennis on 20 episodes ago. Travis and I have chatted across Facebook a lot, but I'd only met him fleetingly before the Fun and Ope mobile studio trekked down to quaint Wilmington, Delaware, still basking in its revolutionary era charm for our interview. I usually try to pry out our guest's origin story, but listening to Bill Ackerman's excellent Supporting Characters podcast, it seemed that Bill had already completed that job. Instead, Travis and I engage in a more freewheeling, loose conversation, one hardly influenced at all by the slowly emptying bottle of the Le Blanc that mysteriously evaporated over the two-plus hours of talk. We'll discuss theater-going experiences across Delaware, Philadelphia, and San Francisco, the work of Dario Argento and Brian De Palma, 
the current state of great directors of the 70s, Lindsay Lohan, film distribution today, the limitations of the TV medium, Asian cinema, clawing out a living, bad jobs, film snobbery, Michael Shannon, the new Twin Peaks, and much more. So let's head over now. You can imagine the late afternoon sun slowly dropping in the sky while we sit in the dining room of a bed and breakfast with every detail in the room rich in colonial detail as we maul over nearly a hundred years between us of film-going thoughts and memories. check or anything or no i think i've been able to kind of do that while we're sitting here talking oh okay um i'm here in uh the fun to know podcast on the road in wilmington delaware where i I haven't been in quite a few years to uh to talk to travis crawford travis crawford a uh well-respected and uh a quite accomplished uh writer on film and he's written for everything from film comment to uh Fangoria to uh, to Diaspar uh, magazine, I think, early on as well. Yeah, was fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> but we both traveled, uh, you know, some of the same paths, sort of uh, geographically at least. We've spent time in Philadelphia and in San Francisco, San Francisco and right. and in Wilmington, and uh, had the benefit of of being someone in the audience when Travis was programming in Philadelphia the Danger After Dark series, which really introduced. Uh, uh, some of the greatest film-going experience I think I, I ever had. It was a, a stunning series while it lasted. And he's, uh, you know, an, kind of an erudite tastemaker and, and, a, and a very sort of uh, specific uh, kind of film in particular, even though his uh, his taste is, is very broad. He, and I, I was only listening to the Supporting Characters podcast that uh, I heard you discuss the uh, genre art film hybrid. And uh, I sort of noticed that being like a, something that you and I share, that sort of interest in films that are kind of too artsy to be naturally attractive to the genre crowd and often too genre-oriented to be of interest to the, to the art film crowd. To me, that's you know, where a lot of the most exciting cinema is being made. I just uh, realized I was communicating by nodding, which is probably not the most effective <laughs> thing to do on a podcast. I apologize. I'll wink when I tell you it's time <laughs> to stop nodding. Okay. Um, no. Uh, uh, so we're, I'm, I'm really glad to have uh, Travis here to talk to about film uh, in general and his ideas about film. Uh, it's, it's funny. There's an odd intimacy between me and Travis because I don't, I don't think we've really ever had a conversation, but we're people who have... Uh, uh, talked on Facebook, uh, you know, a lot over over the years, and he has the cinema diet. I think that I always wanted. He really is in touch with the the festival films and and films sort of at the front line of where great films are discovered. So uh, I'll stop talking about you and bring you onto the show. Thanks for uh, coming in today, uh, yeah, Travis. I've, thank you for having me on, and thank <laughs> you for uh, venturing down to Wilmington. Yeah, I, uh, I I have to admit, you know, it's been many years since I've been in Wilmington. I was really flooded with memories of being in my uh, in in my late teens and early twenties, and going to Tri-State Mall to see films and. Uh, the Concord Mall to see films. And you the know, State I used to Theater. work at Tri-State Mall. I knew you worked at one of them. Tri-State, a little, maybe a little seedier than those other malls. Uh, that's the understatement of the year, <laughs> indeed. Uh, well, it's it's gone now, isn't it? Or is it? 
Um, I believe, in fact, the entire mall has been closed, at least the um, upstairs indoor part of it. I think the lower level strip mall part is still open. But uh, the movie theater closed uh, sometime in the 90s. Um, I don't, I guess it was the 90s. Um, I remember the last film I saw there, just as a, you know, a customer, was um, New Jersey Drive. Oh, and, and the Nick Gomez the film. The Nick Gomez movie, yeah, and that's because it was the only... fan of Laws of Gravity. Yeah, yeah, same here, and it was the only theater in the area where it was playing, and I remember um, I hadn't been there in a few years, and I hadn't worked there in many years, and I remember going in, and it was playing in one of the um, side theaters, uh, the one that uh, was adjacent to the main theater, the large theater, and it, you know the large theater used to occupy that entire side of the building, and then they chopped off a long narrow corridor to make you know a second theater next to it and i i went to see laws of gravity and um i'd never seen this in a theater before since there was literally a huge hole in the ceiling uh where and i was seeing a matinee screening so it was just sunlight coming in and leftover rainwater that was dripping down onto a plastic tarp that had been draped over like the entire right side of uh, the theater and I, I remember seeing that and going, I'm going to venture a guess the theater's going to be closed sometime <laughs> in the near future. And yeah, I don't think it lasted too too much longer than that. Oh, wow, wow. Um, it's Delaware at the time, when I was a kid, I grew up in South Jersey, so mm. it was a, I had to go over the bridge to get here. Yeah. But for as a, a teenager, and when I first was able to drive, going able to being able to go to, to Newark, Delaware, and go to uh, I Like It Like That, and uh, Wonderland, yeah. and uh, the State Theater was yeah. uh, you know primary experience. Uh, of my youth I, I think you're about five years younger than me I was going to say there's just a, enough of a little bit of difference there that um, when I went to the State Theater before it closed in the I don't remember what year in the 80s it closed I should have looked that up but uh, when I was there I had to be taken there you know as a kid you know and I mentioned on supporting characters you know my first memory of the State Theater was being nine years old and you know having my mom take me to go see, at my own urging, Herzog's Nosferatu, <laughs> and then asking Barry, you know, the owner of the theater, if it was appropriate for, you know, a nine-year-old to be able to go see something like that. And I saw a few things there when I was a kid, but by the time um, I was old enough to drive, and certainly by the time I was actually, you know, living on campus and going to University of Delaware, uh, it had closed. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, I, I just sort of narrowly missed that. Yeah, it was a, a repertory theater that, you know, had a, had a very diverse calendar and it had midnight movies. It was a place that really introduced me to the whole world of midnight movies, which you know they was particularly horror every yeah. Saturday at midnight. But also they did the usual. Um, I don't want to say the usual because that make, sounds disparaging. But you know they did the uh, the classic seventies midnight movie lineup: Eraserhead, Pink Flamingos, Harder They Come. Don't know if they did the Jodorowsky films. I don't um, remember seeing them there. Yeah, I remember I'm TLA sure. in Philadelphia. The the repertory theater was showing. Showing those at the time. Um, I remember having gone to that TLA on South Street as a repertory theater a couple times as a little kid around the same time, too. Saw Sleeper, the Woody Allen movie there, which was my favorite comedy when I was a little kid. Also, um, I don't mean, mean to put you on the spot, but what are the versions of Alice in Wonderland, the live action? Is there one from the 30s with Cary Grant? This yeah, is, and uh, and W.C. Fields, I think, is I think that's, as well. I think that's the one I saw there wow. as a little kid, yeah, in repertory. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can't remember exactly who pulled that together, but yeah, I don't remember either. Uh, but yeah, it, it, that whole world—I mean, this is for for me was pre the uh, age of video. So yeah. I mean, movies were still this ephemeral thing that you know, like rivers that flow could not be stopped or uh, or channeled in any way. 
so the, the repertory theaters was a, a great place to see things that were too offbeat for television and, and uh, to catch up on a lot of film history. So, Well, again, I mean, if I turned 47 in a month, um, and I'm hoping you can edit that out. But <laughs> <laughs> so, but if there is a few years between us, uh, you know, the methods of like film distribution and exhibition, I guess we're changing so much during that period that for me, and I, I think for a lot of people around my age, um, that was the big VHS video store thing. Yeah. So, you know, like I remember having some repertory film memories as a kid. I remember my mom taking me to a screening of um, My Man Godfrey at uh, the Grand on Market Street here downtown. But then for me, that whole explosion was, you know, video stores and we got a VCR when I was 14. And then it was, you know, so that was... I think for a lot of people my age, it was like that was the repertory cinema more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. For better or worse. I was in college at that time, and I, okay. I bought a beta machine from from the, the theater manager at the at the uh, the GCC theater in uh, in Deptford where I worked. Is that General Cinema? De- no, yeah, it's General, General Cinema. cinema. Yeah. Where you know I toiled as a you know an usher and a manager and a cashier for a few years. I think the only General Cinema we had around here was the old theater in uh, Christiana Mall, oh, and yeah. I don't remember seeing that many films there. Um, I saw a Christmas Story there when it was originally out. Um, I, I worked there as well, actually. Yes. I, 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 I got transferred from the GCC. And Christiana to the one in Deptford. Well, then, is this a misguided childhood memory of mine, or I seem to remember the ceilings being unbelievably low? Like even as a kid, looking up, and it felt like I could almost bump my head on the ceiling, walking down the hallways and into the theaters. I think in the upper, the upper level, they were low, and I think in the in the back theaters, I think they were fairly high. Okay, that's where I saw Dune. Actually, I saw Dune at uh, Concordville. Um, I don't know if you remember oh, that sure. theater. Um, yeah. Uh, also saw Blue Velvet there while we're on that same Lynch 80s theater going um, theater going thing. Yeah. yeah. I like that theater, though. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's funny. We were talking about uh, your appearance on supporting characters, which will be, you know, the framework of the whole rest of this interview, I suppose. Um, but you talked about, uh, I think, the theater going experience, those those people who were old and uh, really appreciate the film going experience and aren't embracing the, uh, the oh, new God. streaming uh, video world that we are you're gonna jump on me right in. away about that um i no, no I, I i just wanted to hear you discuss how you know, what you enjoyed about the theater going experience oh what i enjoy about it yeah, yeah oh no there was a lot about seeing films in a theater that i miss very much and when i was being when i was on supporting characters and i was um saying things that were a little bit dismissive of people who fetishize 35 millimeter screenings and, you know, the importance of seeing things on film. Um, That was more just sort of talking about the actual format that you're viewing the film in and being so mired in nostalgia that you're kind of anti, I don't even want to say progress because that implies that it's necessarily a positive thing, which it might not be, but that you're anti inevitable change. So it was a little more critical of that. I'm not critical of the experience of seeing films in a theater with an audience at all. I mean, some of the best memories, um, uh, you know, I've ever had have been seeing films in crowded theaters with receptive or actually in some cases, hostile audiences, you know, where the reaction was really interesting. Um, seeing, uh, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, with a with a uh, audience getting angry and leaving seemed like a three dimensional sort yeah. of thing of the uh, I remember disgust of the dining room in the film. I as remember well. having that experience seeing that at uh, the original Ritz Five in Philly, yeah, that's and that's where was, I saw it as well. Yeah, yeah, and there was a real hostility there. Um, 
no hostility in film screenings can be just as entertaining as uh, you know enthusiastic reception. I mean, I remember, and you see it more sometimes in film festivals. I remember seeing Michael Haneke's Funny Games oh, yeah. at the Toronto Film Festival, and um, very sadistic film for those yeah, who haven't seen it. Yeah, uh, the original Austrian version, not the American one. And um, although I'm sure that's just as bad, I, I didn't need to clarify. And uh, <laughs> I don't think there's a single change in the script. Exactly, I've never seen him. That's the only one of his I haven't it's, seen. I did see it, and uh, it really it had a different response than the original I think mainly because the the cast is so unknown for me in the yeah. original to see Tim Roth and Naomi uh, Watts, Naomi Watts yeah. acting out this thing it became something that was happening to movie stars and it, yeah, was, exactly. it was interesting how how uh, how much that changed the impact of that film for me well I, not to get too much off on a tangent here but uh, you know I, rem- I remember him like saying he was interested in remaking the film you know because it, since the film was very much kind of a uh, polemic on the way violence is treated in Hollywood cinema. He thought it would be more effective to make a film with, you know, recognizable English language stars. And it's like, yeah, but that film wound up being released in the exact same theaters that the Austrian version wound up being released. I mean, if it played in multiplexes in Iowa, I would say that would have been a valid approach, but it didn't do that. So I seem kind of redundant, but no, I, I, I remember seeing funny games at the Toronto festival and people, uh, booing and hissing him, you know, when he came on stage and being incredibly hostile um, I remember seeing the Tim, speaking of Tim Roth, the only film he directed, The War Zone. Oh, I saw that too. Also at the Toronto Festival and during the... Um, I, saw, I saw the San Francisco Festival and uh, I remember a woman who confessed to you know, being a rape victim herself, right. lashing out. At the, I think it was the screenwriter maybe, it, it wasn't Tim Roth there. Um, mm. But it was, you know, painful and it was tough to hear her pain and tough to agree with what she was saying and tough to see him deal with it. And was this after the film? Yeah, this is after viewing the film, which well, is then, a, uh, a powerful film. Yeah, I mean, I can trump you on that one. During the rape scene, <laughs> a guy uh, in the audience on the other side of the theater, packed house, stood up and just screamed at the top of his lungs, Jesus Christ, is this really necessary? And I mean, there was just this strange silence that came over the whole audience you know like a trance had been broken and everyone was just sort of looking at each other like did that just happen did somebody just stand up in the middle of this film and scream and finally you know a couple seconds later someone told him to be quiet and sit down and then he started arguing with them and there was this screaming and this is going on while the film you know this horrible traumatic scene is unfolding on the screen in front of everyone at the same time this is happening in the theater and then the guy um, storms out and runs up the aisle and the whole time he's can I curse is that okay sure absolutely uh, I encourage you okay and the guy um, is running up the aisle I'm fucking angry and then bolts out of the theater and proceeds to run into Tim Roth right outside the theater and they apparently had a, a long conversation wow. according to Tim Roth after the film so yeah but um, and that's something that's only come out I think in the last couple of years as he really talked about I mean the film seemed haunted he, and yet he, right. was his grandfather raped both him and his father he, he made a vague about. reference to that um, after the screening I remember he asked the audience because I was at a public screening not a press and industry screening and um, he said uh, are there any journalists in the audience right now and my friend looked at me and he was like well you're going to have to leave and I was like I'm not fucking leaving I write for like filmmaker I'm not for the not here for the New York Times and um, then he proceeded to to make a vague reference to that but he didn't say who the abuser was and you know I I, you know he hasn't gone into that until fairly recently but uh, 
Yeah. But, but no, we were talking about hostile receptions for films. Um, yeah, those can be interesting, but I mean, no, I mean, I've had wonderful experiences where the audience was like, um, you know, to this day, even though this is not necessarily one of my favorite films, and I actually prefer the original, seeing Evil Dead 2 at Tri-State Mall when it came out was the most amazing in sync example of audience participation and reception to a movie I have ever seen in my life. I, it's also the only time I've ever actually seen people, well, one guy, literally rolling in the aisles laughing. I thought that that was just a phrase, you know, it's like a figure of speech. No, someone actually fell out of their seat and was rolling in the aisle laughing. And people were just in hysterics throughout the entire film. It was the only time I was actually busted at one point. It was, it was the, I mean, I don't know about that. You know, (laughs) thankfully I didn't witness that if that happened, but uh, it was the uh, only time also I, I, we went out in the lobby. I was with my friend Jim and I was like, do you want to just go back in and watch it again? And we were like, yep. And so we just went back in and watched it again. And the audience for the second show was, I mean, just as, you know, entertained, yeah, I tend to think of like horror films as, you know, when you see horror films with a packed receptive audience, that's probably the best uh, that you get in terms of, you know, that feeling of, um, you know, community and that you get yeah. with, you know, a group of strangers, hundreds of strangers in a movie theater. And I do sort of miss that because, I mean, increasingly, uh, you know, watching films has become more of a solitary endeavor. So, um, yeah, I miss that. And yeah. I miss that at film festivals. Um you know, including some that I programmed. Did you ever see a Japanese film called Whispering of the Gods? I don't think I did. I remember the title. Uh, it was, I think, in 2000... Don't hold me to this, but 2006 or 2007. I don't remember which year. Um, and I programmed it for the film festival in Philadelphia and had gone to like a lot of trouble. And the festival went to quite a bit of expense to bring it over. It was the North American premiere and... You know, it was, it was my favorite, one of my favorite films of that year. And it's this um, very uh, explicit, somber drama about a um, mentally disturbed young man who returns to a monastery um, sort of in the middle of the country in the winter where he was um, sexually abused by priests when he was, you know, there as a child. And he proceeds to enact a series of sexually fueled revenges on... Uh, uh, the people that you know had abused him and it's very graphic and at the time when I saw it you know on a screener at home by myself I was taking it appropriately seriously and the audience it was at Ritz East the audience when you know I and I screened the film with this kind of um you know the warning that I do in front of like very graphic films which is part cautionary and Part, you know, William Castle Ballyhoo, <laughs> you know. And the audience thought that this was the funniest fucking film they had ever seen in their life. <laughs> and people were in hysterics. And there's a certain rhythm at a point in the film where. Is every, this really inherent in the film in any no, way? No, 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 no. I would never have communicated this to the director that people thought that this film was very, very funny. What, did uh, they, what do you think they found funny about it? Each, there's a certain rhythm at a point in the movie where every scene is a sexual perversion or atrocity. Bestiality, p- 
people licking up vomit off the floor for erotic gratification. Um, I'm not even going to go even further. I mean, those two are bad enough, and you can just imagine. <laughs> so is there but, a certain, like, topping yourself quality exactly, exactly. to it? It yeah, was like... Yeah. Um, just when you thought so, it couldn't yes, get any worse. It, it would just know? get more and more um, extreme and unpleasant, and and that would be the rhythm of the film. It, it would just cut to the next scene, and you would be in the midst of something else like this. Um and each time it would cut and it would be this very um, static, fixed camera, long shot, you know, slow Absolutely. cinema. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. A respectful distance. And it would be, you know, a, a dog filleting a priest underneath his, his robe. And the audience would just burst out laughing. I mean, people were just in hysterics. And that seemed maybe a particularly Philadelphia type characteristic. I think that's true. I, yeah, I think that that's exa- it, it is very, it was very, very Philly. I remember Frank Henenlotter showing Bad Biology, a very... I was not there that year, but uh, yeah. Oh, great screening. You know, very transgressive, dare I say, uh, sex film. Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, the crowd really ate it up, but afterwards he's like, Philadelphia really gets me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I've mentioned this in the past, but, um, you know, one of the goals that I always had with, you know, the films I would program was to see if I could, like, offend people. And... I don't think that ever really happened wow. in any sort of like larger sense. And I mean, if you showed some of the films I showed in other cities, you know, you would have definitely had uh, confrontational conversations with people who were, you know, again, storming out of the theater in anger. No, never happened. <laughs> people were just largely unfazed. And I do think that's very much a Philly dynamic. So, yeah. We were talking about about film going and the, yeah, the love yeah. of the sort of film going experience, and the one word that you said that really you know ruffled my feathers and made me think about it was uh, that is just fetish then, and then then I thought like oh he's certainly so right it is fetish I do have this fetish for thirty five millimeter film, which is fine. Just like um, a fixation on nostalgia is fine as long as it's recognized as such and doesn't get in the way of accepting new things or recognizing I said progress but you could also just phrase it as change because I know too many people that become so mired in the mindset of um, well they don't make good films anymore you know movies aren't what they used to be or well I don't want to go and you know see a film projected digitally I only want to see 35 millimeter ideally I would always love to see an archival good looking 35 millimeter print over a DCP but I don't necessarily want to prioritize seeing a battered, scratched, faded, you know, where all the flesh tones go to that sickly pink, yeah, you sure. know, like look like a pig. It's the um, blues that fade out, I believe. Yeah, and, and, you know, and sometimes of a cut version of a film, you know, that was released, you know, in American theaters. I don't really want to prioritize seeing that over seeing you know a perfect looking blu-ray that was taken from vault materials maybe remastered in 2k maybe remastered in 4k you know you can have a decent flat screen widescreen led lcd tv or even better you can have a projector you know i think that 
that's a better representation of a film than necessarily focusing on just 35 millimeter at the expense of everything else. So again, for me, it's I, I'm not big into like fetishizing a format. Yeah. You know, for me, it would be more like what is the best representation of that film that you can see. But part of that is, I don't think for a lot of people, even though, you know, there's a lot of talk about 35 millimeter, I think a lot of it is the experience of seeing something in a theater with an audience. And, you know, it's funny that we're talking about that just after we talked about all these, you know, great experiences I've had over the years seeing films with audiences. I don't necessarily know if I have that attraction anymore because I think like a lot of older people, it's been too beaten down over the years by how many bad experiences I've had seeing movies, admittedly more of like the multiplex on a Saturday night variety of, you know, looking out and seeing an ocean of smartphone screens, you know, illuminating the theater and people having conversations at, you know, normal volume while the film is on. And, you know, and no, you don't have that in repertory screenings necessarily, although you have a whole other litany of problems. People that think that any film made prior to the year of their birth is automatically hysterically funny because the style, <laughs> dialogue, delivery, or whatever isn't the same as it would be now. Uh, that was in San Francisco. You know, you would hope you had a very scholarly, you know, film-going clientele, and yet they were merciless if something yeah. was, uh, you know, socially unacceptable. And everything in their, was their view. everything was camp. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you see things that uh, you know. I've seen things at Film Forum in New York. You know, it's Film Forum in New York. You would think, you know, these people would be, no. I mean, whether it was, you know, I've gone to like film noir programs there or years and years ago, you know, an Italian horror thing there. And I, no, everything was fodder for guffaws. Um, and in Philly, you get that too. You know, when they had the Carnival of Souls re-release and played at the Roxy. And mind you, there are creaky moments in Carnival of Souls that I can understand people finding <laughs> funny. There's also like profoundly eerie, scary stuff in there but now everything was just it's a it's that laugh of superiority right exactly like, aren't we so much more enlightened now you know kind of thing so i don't really understand the i mean why would you go out of your way to i mean it's one thing if you're sitting on your couch you know at home and you know stoned eating cheetos watching these movies and you're finding everything hysterical why would you go out to a theater and pay money and see that to only be um derisive and you know feel yeah, yeah superior to it no I, know, I didn't understand that so yeah so fetish fetish it's the word fetish that really got me and i was really thinking <laughs> <laughs> i was really thinking of just now that we have such a flexibility of availability and mm -hmm. you know the film history opening up and everything just just now film has become more of a, a, a something that you can really uh, fine-tune to the to the fetish of your uh, of your of your interest and it seems like more of a fetish object than ever uh, these days that's true it's funny i was just thinking about that um a few days ago about how i think i mean myself included uh, unavoidably oh, oh same here well, you know? same here uh, but i think that that can be a great thing and that can be a terrible thing because um on the one hand i've always said that i, I i've kind of resented the fact that cinema is the one art form that's supposed to be completely universal and democratic in its appeal to all audiences you know i mean you're making something that costs a million dollars to make exactly it's, it's got be, it's because to, it's because of yeah. you know that it is the most expensive art form to produce you want to reach the largest number of people possible whereas you know i mean you know we've worked in record stores and bookstores video stores um if someone came in and said uh well i'm a i'm a big fan of um 
Thomas Pynchon, you know, what would you recommend? You wouldn't take them over to like Zane Grey Westerns or something. You know, you wouldn't say, oh, well, you would love, you know, this Louis L'Amour book, you know, or, you know, if someone comes into a record store and says, um, I'm very big into uh, John Cage and Carl Heinz Stockhausen and Lamont Young. Have you heard this new record by Alabama? You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's not going to be the dynamic. I mean, you understand that people have their own niches that they want to focus on. But, you know, I mean, we've all had conversations with people. Oh, what movies have you seen that are good? You know, well, I, last night I watched this, um, you know, French documentary about uh, a prolific filmmaker in Afghanistan making uh, low-budget videos, you know. and Oh, have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy 2? You know, and it's so, like, you're not... <laughs> the one with the talking raccoon. Right. Um, so you're not talking the same language, but with movies it's sort of expected that you would be. So on the one hand, I kind of like that, well, now we can all have our little areas. You know, I, I think, like, you know, with streaming and downloading and Blu-ray and DVD and all the choices that are out there for people, you can be more focused on the niche in film that you want to fetishize and that you want to look at more than anything else. But, and I'm a victim of this, you know, just from what we were talking about a few minutes ago, then by the same token, you lose that sense of uh, the communal experience a lot of times of going into a theater with a group of hundreds of strangers and everyone is kind of able to, you know, forget about their own personal issues and stories and even you know personal backgrounds or you know problems they've had that day whatever and kind of be submerged into this group experience of enjoying the movie and i think that you know on the one hand it's great that we can all focus just on watching you know experimental work of the 1960s done by you know filmmakers in the west coast and, you know or for me like i mean i could watch 70s shaw brothers movies you know forever and ever and i would be content but again, those are very solitary hermetic experiences where you don't have um, something that like I do when I like get writer's block and if I'm working on an article or something and I'm like, you know, we all do like, okay, I'm online. How can I kill an hour without, you know, knowing that I'm killing an hour <laughs> as I go to like websites, cinema treasures is a big one devoted to like old movie theaters and classic movie palaces. And, you know, and I read about histories of the theaters and, you know, look at the photos and, and um, I mean, can you imagine going into like these theaters from that period of time where it, they sat like 2000 people and, you know, you would go there and sit with 2000 people and watch, um, watch the news. Number one, too. newsreels, yeah, and, you know, really. cartoons and, and have that kind of like collective experience. It's like that's so alien, I think, now with movies. And so, I mean, you know, like anyone else, I mean, I, I miss that. I think that that's a sad development. But um you know, in terms of perverse, perversing, perversing, that was a Freudian slip. In terms of a preserving um, film, both physically and also just film culture and sustaining that, I, I guess it's a great thing that people do have, you know, those specific niche areas of focus. But, um, you know, I mean, as a, as a mass entertainment, you know, I was looking at the listings for what was that, for the films that are at... Uh, the multiplex at uh, you know the riverfront this weekend and i literally i was going down them and i'm like i can't imagine sitting through any of those when's the last time you went and saw a mainstream film at the cineplex do you think uh get out i guess yeah. a couple months ago um i mean that film really uh, uh 
seemed to do what I used to love about films, and, and that was really it made everybody start talking about it. Yeah. You know, and, and you, oh, you like movies? Have you seen Get Out? You know, and if for, you know, we, I guess we just talked about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. You're likely to get that too. But I, I, mean, I think Get Out really struck people with something new and something to talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that um, kind of classic. American 70s film dynamic of, you know, it is something that's uh, within a popular genre and that's, you know, aimed at large audiences, but has, um, I was going to say subtext, but it's not very sub in that <laughs> film. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it's, right there. It's um, the text. Yeah, exactly. That is the text of the film. I mean, it, it has, you know, social and political themes that are actually something you want to get into well, when you talk yeah, about it. Well, I mean, just the fact that it really does, it does something that is relevant with something that's happening on the front pages of the paper and right. is being talked about, like... Uh, you know, so much cinema is escapism. It's it's fun to me when there's that crackling of you know, do the right thing had or or even Fahrenheit 9/11, the Michael Moore film, was a sense that we were seeing George Bush talked about on a mass level that we in a way we weren't before. And it is interesting seeing um, Get Out in a theater. I mean, I, I there was not a large crowd when I saw it. I saw it in the middle of the day, but um, even then, and I, it was one of those films where I was like, damn, I wish I'd seen this Friday or Saturday night because. Mild spoiler for the film. Who anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, the ending of the movie when the police car comes up, you heard this like kind of half laugh, half groan in the audience from people, like what they thought was going to happen, you know. And um, uh, rescue you know, didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, a given. It, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, they thought that the film was very much going to capitalize on you know a lot of tragic things that have happened in this country. And um, and then this sort of laugh of relief when you know that wasn't the case. So um, yeah, so you know I miss um, audience experiences like that. I would have seen it comes at night. Uh, um, that was on my list of what I wanted to see next. Actually, but I was very busy the week that it opened, and yeah. then I looked on Friday and it was gone. Apparently, it was not very well received. Yeah. You know, audiences and commercially. So unfortunately, I missed it the week that it was here. I've been surprised and, and uh, kind of happily surprised looking at some of these multiplex uh, uh, listings that a lot more of them are sort of creeping into showing one or two Asian films, whether it will be a Hong Kong film or a Bollywood film, that uh, they're not getting any coverage really, at least in the mainstream press. Well, no, because those things are not designed to appeal to curious um, non-Asian audiences or anything like that, or art house audiences. I mean, they're really booked. That's That's gone on for a long, long time, though. Um, they're booked for Asian communities that live in the area. That's been particularly big for, I think, the Bollywood films now. It used to be, well, Wellgo um, does a lot of the, um, the Hong Kong and Chinese films in uh, the multiplexes here, um, and they're a big distributor there. But I remember in the 90s, uh, there used to be Hong Kong films that would show every uh, Saturday night at midnight at the Franklin Mills Mall. Oh, yeah. Movie theater. And that was that was around the time that I really started. Um, actually, it was a little after the time. I was really into the Hong Kong films and, you know, Hong Kong New Wave stuff. And it was also, this would have been early, mid-90s. So it was just kind of, I don't want to say pre-internet, but it was before, you know, everything was online. And they didn't have a website or didn't have any listings for what they were screening online. I'm trying to think if they even had like a recorded outgoing voicemail message that would tell you what was screening if they did it was you know in Cantonese so you would kind of just have to go there every Saturday at midnight and find out what was showing there without you know any idea and 
and they strictly rented the house from Franklin Mills. I mean, Franklin Mills, you know, the theater had nothing to do with it. And um, so friends and I who were really into Hong Kong film, we would go there every Saturday at midnight for, you know, we did this for a while. And it would invariably be, you know, we'd be hoping for some, and they never showed like category three horror or explicit yeah, yeah. anything. It was all very family friendly. And it would always invariably be these either kind of silly romantic comedies or very sappy tearjerker romances, you know, or one of them has a disease and there's a lot of uh, solo piano music on the soundtrack and, you know, Vaseline on the lens and that kind of thing. So eventually we just got tired of it and we stopped going. And um, the one weekend we stopped going, I remember, you know, a friend of mine called me up. He was like, hey, do you want to go to Franklin Mills tonight? I was like, no, you know, I'm tired of like going up there and we see the same films and we didn't go. And then the next day, turned on the news and there was a gang shooting inside the theater <laughs> that spilled out into the lobby and then into the men's room in the theater where one of the kids had been pistol whipped to the point of being unconscious and another one, and I'll never forget the news, felt the need to point out the specific detail, another one had been shot in the scrotum. So... <laughs> And that's that was exacting, and is yeah, exactly, and that and that was the I believe that was the last weekend uh, that Franklin Mills ever did the Chinatown <laughs> Hong Kong films. So I think it ended at that point. Yeah, so. I lived in San Francisco throughout the nineties. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Had so, a similar experience. I saw. Um, oh, you're gonna have to. Do you remember the names of the theaters? The Pagoda, the World. And I think the, I went to the World because yeah. I remember seeing. I remember seeing um, Bullet in the Head at one of the Chinatown theaters when it was in its initial release because the movie... Have you seen the movie? Oh, yeah. The version I saw in Chinatown in San Francisco ended where he um, puts the skull of the friend on the conference table in the boardroom and then puts the gun to the guy's head and then boom, and credits. So when I saw it months and months later on video, you know, I have like my iced tea next to me and that scene comes up and I like gather my iced tea and I'm getting ready to like turn the VCR off. And then it goes on for like 15 or 20 minutes with this huge car chase at the docks after that. And they're like, you know, and it's like this elaborate action scene that ends the movie. And uh, that I, and I was like, what the hell is this? I'd never seen any of that before. And yeah, I didn't realize until quite a bit later that there were two versions of the movie in circulation. So, yeah. I would love to talk a bit about San Francisco and uh, yeah. talk about fetish and nostalgia and all those things. I, I mean, I was in my uh, mid-20s, I guess, when, when I moved there in 91, and uh, I moved there for, for you know, I had no job there or anything. I was cleaning fish in Alaska before that. Oh, but, Jesus. <laughs> but it seemed like a great city to move to. I knew one person there. And uh, but I was really going there because I knew I could see all the film that I really needed to see there. And uh, Philadelphia's repertory uh, culture had sort of boiled down to uh, David's place on uh, out of the Temple Cinematheque. Right. And the, the TLA had closed uh, doing repertory theater, but to move to San Francisco really gave me a chance to live someplace where I think there was about seven or eight repertory theaters that were regularly showing. 
unusual stuff within the Bay Area there uh, altogether. Um, Castro, Roxy, what was that theater called? Red Vic? Red Vic I worked at as a volunteer in the late 90s, yeah. Um, God, I should remember. The, uh, over in Berkeley, there was the uh, uh, the theater that was just off the... Uh, uh, the Bart the Bart stuff there, right off the campus. Uh, I don't know if I ever went there. Oh, I saw Vampire. Uh, the first time I saw Vampire Circus there. Oh, okay. I couldn't have been more keyed up about finally seeing this film. I'd only seen stills from it, like Famous Monsters of Filmland and film books, and then they had an edited print that took out the entire leopard woman's, oh, or oh. the old you know tiger woman scene was removed. Oh, oh god, that's so frustrating when you like <laughs> want to see a film for so long and then you wind up having to see some you know butchered print. I was full of uh, of young anger and was like, I want a discount or something. You know, where I tried to get my money back, but they they weren't having it, unfortunately. Now, not to get away from San Francisco because I want to come back and talk about that yeah, one yeah. theater there in particular, but um, talking about uh, Temple Cinema Tech in Philly, uh, where. Did you see a lot of films there? Yeah, I did. I saw it originally when it was on the Walnut Street, and you'd take the elevator up to the ninth floor or something. Oh, uh, that's the only time I ever went. I didn't know it. Ever uh, it was there. on Broad Street in the uh, in the Jewish, uh, you know, uh, Y building there for a while. Oh, I never went to it when I was there. Um, I'm... Jennifer Steinberg was the person that. Um, do you oh, know sure. her? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, she was the person that um, I think was programming it when I went. I remember seeing. Um, well, we're talking about John Woo uh, a minute ago. I remember seeing The Killer there. I saw The Killer. Was it at the Roxy that it first ran in Philadelphia, or was that even before that? I think it was before that. Oh, wow. Uh, I saw that there. I saw Celine and Julie go boating there. Oh. Um, I feel like I saw Betty Blue there, even though I'd already seen the film by that time. So yeah. I guess I was just seeing it again. Um, I saw and walked out of Peter Greenaway's The Falls there. I saw it at the Castro, yeah. Yeah, because it was just like, oh, I just can't take this. <laughs> um, yeah, but a couple other things there. It was, a, it was a nice venue. I mean, you know, it's not ideal to take an elevator up in an office building, you know, but, uh, you know, it's okay. Yeah. But, um, no, I mean, nothing in Philly was comparable to um, San Francisco. I think when I first moved there, I had no money. And this was 1991, you said? 91. And I remember... It's either 90 or 91. Actually, no, I, I don't remember exactly. I got there. I so said the fishing season was over in uh, September of 91. In Alaska? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was there before that. And um, what, 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 Where were you at in your life? How, how old were you? I guess you were like 21 or so? Or? 20, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what was your, besides film, was there any other obsessions? Or what was, what was fueling a 21-year-old Travis Crawford? Um, I mean, when I was 20, I dropped out of college. Uh, I was living with um, my girlfriend at the time. Um, we were living here in Wilmington. And What were you studying? Were you studying at the University of Delaware? I was. My major was film, cinema studies. was theory and production. And my minor was women's studies. Was there good, good work being done there? Uh, no, not at all. Actually, I mean, I remember... Um, I, I, you know, I think if I'd been in a better um, program at a better school, uh, I, I probably would have stuck it out and been there for the duration. But, you know, I mean, I was in film classes where, you know, I'm mean, going to be there 18 or 19 and the professor, you know, I would be talking to them afterwards. And they were like, oh, you know, more than me, you should teach this class. <laughs> OK, don't say that to someone who's like right on the cusp of deciding whether or not they should stay in school, um, you know, talking to them about um Last year at Marion Bad, and you know, her telling me, "Oh, I could never screen that for the class here. They would tear the screen down." And it's like, oh God, 
So now, I mean, I was, I was really unhappy in school and I left and um, was working full time and living here. And then it was just one of those things where, you know, you're 20 years old and you decide, well, I'm just going to work full time. I might as well do that you know, someplace that's more pleasant to look uh, at. I remember making that exact same calculation. Like if I could be poor, I could be poor anywhere. Right, I might as well exactly. be poor in San Francisco. <laughs> I mean, it is, I, I, to this day, I think it is the most beautiful city in the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you most know. Most European city it sometimes builds itself as. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and those two go hand in hand. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, I just decided, but I, I, no, I was going to say, I remember moving there and having like no money and not having any idea I was going to pay rent the next month and then you know, getting the change together I had and then walking to the Castro and seeing a double bill of, I think it was a Clockwork Orange at Fellini Satyricon. And, um, that's a lot of cinema for a one, yeah, one in city. the middle of like a weekday afternoon. And, um, and then shortly after that, going to the infamous strand uh-huh. on, uh, market and what I'm guessing between seventh and eighth. Okay. Not too far from Toulon, the Vietnamese place. We just spoke briefly about this, but both of us were, were big film goers at the at the Strand, uh, yeah. which was a you know a pure skid row, you know what you might have gotten in Times Square in a lot of ways as an experience, but clearly programmed by someone who knew their shit. Yeah, <laughs> so it was like, and I can't remember the guy's name. I actually was reading something about the history of the Strand. I think it was on the Cinema Treasures website that I mentioned um, last yeah, year. A beautiful theater had a balcony. I mean, in complete disrepair and yeah. you know, rats crawling around yeah. and, and a little clock on the uh, upper I, I left hand I remember that corner. clock vividly. It was like illuminated by like blue or purple neon yeah. around yeah. it or something like that. And I found myself really saying like 40 minutes into a film, the, you know, this should be going somewhere else. Well, I remember that like clock. seeing that huge illuminated <laughs> clock and thinking you're showing like a triple bill of movies to people in the weekday. You're really sure you want to remind them of the passage of time? <laughs> this is not, a, this is, doesn't strike me as like a, you know, I don't think we're like a group of people. Yeah. They're like, you know, oh, got to get out of here by 4.30 so I can make my meeting. Yeah, I don't think time meant a lot to the people <laughs> I mean, that were there. You know, you're hearing bottles roll down the aisle and snoring from the other side of the auditorium. People, people coming and sitting right next to you, maybe wanting to get with you. That never happened to me, which oh. now I look back and I'm, I'm kind of insulted. But, um, <laughs> No, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't think uh, the passage of time is really important to the people in that theater. But, yeah, there was the big clock. I think the first thing I saw there was um, where you knew, okay, well, this is like a repertory house that's curated that just happens to be a Skid Row theater. I think it was a double bill. I can't imagine why I would have left and not seen the other movie. But it was a double bill of The Brood with another older Cronenberg film. Oh, really? And um, it might have been Videodrome, but I didn't see the other one. I don't know why. Maybe I was one of those people that was looking at the clock on the wall and realized <laughs> I had somewhere to be. And, um, but no, I mean, clearly, because obviously both those films had been at a theatrical release for years, you knew that it was being, you know, programmed. How many years were you there? Oh, not even a year. Not even a year. No. Because I think it went through periods where it wasn't so curated, where it was more just I, like a second-run house. Well, and also it was an actual triple X house at 1.2. Later, I, I think at the very end, yeah, it became a triple X projected video place yeah. by the end. Yeah. But there was this golden period where you know I saw 
uh, incredible uh, double and triple bills there. I, I I usually went in the day. I would try and get there ten o'clock and get the get, get the triple feature done. Oh, wow. You know, before five, yeah, so yeah. I could do something else in the day. Um, but uh, I remember going there at night. I, this woman I was dating was really thought it was interesting. There was a whole mystique that I went to the Skid Row Theater, so she mm. wanted to come with me, and we went at night. And it was a much more harrowing place. It was harrowing enough during the day, but at night, now that area. Did you go to any? Because um, well, that was the Tenderloin, right? Or... Just off the Tenderloin, I think. Okay. But I, I saw Gun Crazy, the um, the remake with uh, Drew Barrymore. It drew Barrymore yeah. and uh, and Ms. Forty Five together there on that date. She was the perfect, well, exactly. the perfect date for that movie. To there really you go. go over. I mean, yeah. again, I'm, that just shows you that, you know, I mean, you're looking at something that was clearly being programmed by, I'm going to have to look his name up uh, when we're done here. Um, yeah, someone with definite sensibilities. Did you go to any other uh, Grindhouse-type theaters? On- there was another theater a little further down. That when, the, when the Strand, I think, went to X-rated, I started going to this other theater, which was nowhere near as exciting. And they had a propensity to, to, to project some films out of focus. Oh, I don't know whether it was a changing lens thing or whatever, but um, and uh, when I went and complained, uh, the guy just got angry at me and said, "You need new glasses." And then as I, be- <laughs> as I became a regular here, I heard like that, you know, him yelled out at everybody who ever complained about the uh, about oh. the projection. But uh, that's where I met uh, Jamie Gillis, uh, a San Francisco resident, uh, down there uh, watching a movie. I saw him uh, the week that Savannah died, and so oh, I thought wow. I have a natural end to. Uh, to talk to Jamie Gillis here, I can walk over. Had and he worked with her? He had worked with, with Savannah. And I, I naive youth, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I uh, said, you know, I guess this is you know, one of those stories, you know, you, you do find in the porn industry. And he really stopped me and said, it's Hollywood. We, you find this everywhere. <laughs> you know, uh, young girls come to Los Angeles, whether they're in the porn industry or any other industry. And, you know, sometimes it turns out bad for them. I thought, he is kind of right about that. Such a fascinating figure. I, I one of the few like golden age porn actors who was actually an actor. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, you see him in whether you're, you know you're seeing him in. Um, did you ever see Abigail Leslie is back in town? The Joe Sarno film. No, no. Um, oh wait a minute. Who did you say you ran into? Jamie Gillis. Okay, all right, all right. Yes, I am thinking of Jamie Gillis. I just want to make sure. <laughs> I always I thought of him as the, the, the Elliot Gould of porn. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. No, for a second I was like um, confusing him with someone else. No, but it is Jamie Gillis. Um, he's in, what's the Radley Metzger? Well, he's probably in multiple. He's Radley. in Misty Beethoven. Misty Beethoven, exactly. Yeah. That's when I really realized he was an actor, too, right. because he's playing a completely different character than himself. Uh, no, I mean, he's, he's great in those films. And then, of course, you see more notorious work like uh, Water Power. I, I hear the title. I've never gone there. <laughs> wow. Um, and then, you know, and I think he had this whole, I don't know if you're going to want this in the podcast. I've never seen any of these, but I mean, he had that whole like video gonzo series where I think it was like very BDSM oriented. Is, and, well, are you talking about dirty debutantes? No, 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 not the Ed Power stuff. Cause this he, was, they started off as the, the nasty brothers. And, but, but I think he only lasted about 10 episodes. No, this was, uh, this was like stuff where he was apparently living in, uh, I'm trying to think of who told these stories. I think it was Sharon Mitchell or someone about well, like the Rialto podcast, maybe, or it, it might've been a Rialto report thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, he was living in the grimiest of apartments back in New York and he was like, you know, picking up, um, prostitutes and, you know, it would be the kind of thing where, you know, he would have them 
let's not get into it actually you know if someone wants to like look up Jamie Gillis and Gonzo on it's it's not stuff that I, I feel the uh, sweetest guy imaginable too well that's I do. that's the whole thing yeah. that's what I mean I mean there's such the you know dichotomy and the contrast there you know I've heard from people that uh, met him that said he was you know a lovely guy very intelligent you know classically trained actor but certainly had a whole other uh, whole other side to him. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Hey, I, I used to work at, at that postcard store in North Beach who had mm-hmm. the old arcade machines, and he would come in and play them, and he really liked the one with uh, the baseball game, which it has a little bat, and you knock the marble up into the stands, and a light runs around the bases. Very old-fashioned, like, 40s thing, but he was, I remember him coming over and saying, like, oh, they had these, you know, I think Coney Island or something, you know, from his youth, and... You know, I knew exactly who he was the moment I saw him and really wow. picked up this conversation with him. And so, like, he would come in there regularly when I worked, and we would, you know, shoot the shit about the week. And, uh, yeah, gentle, gentle guy. We were That's both jazz fans. He talked about seeing Billie Holiday as a kid, uh, you know. And he said she drank out of a, a flask, which would seem to be a, uh, you know, a kind of gross, you know, unladylike thing to do. He says, but not when she did it. It was, you know, it was like a princess, you know, to watch her. Well, skin cancer, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, but he was somebody I always hoped was, you know, the Tarantino sort of famously resurrecting uh, people from the edges of cinema. He seemed like somebody who really deserved, a, you know, a straight performance uh, before he passed. Yeah, certainly. Did you ever see Nighthawks? Yes, the, the uh, terrible Stallone, Stallone film. Movie. Yeah, um, he's the highlight of it now for me. Uh, I think he's only in one scene <laughs> where he, I, I guess he's Lindsay Wagner's boss in yeah, the film. Yeah, yeah. And, um, no, I, notable for having a great Rutger Hauer villain performance and yeah. uh, and not much else. But yeah, <laughs> it's a side tangent if ever I've heard one. <laughs> um, so uh, San Francisco, what, what did uh, what did you take away from your time there? Uh, you know, enjoying the the cinema culture that was there. Um, you said you're just there for only a year or so. Huh? Yeah, no, it was a very brief period of time. I wish it'd been longer, but. Um, no, I lost the job at the uh, tourist trap gift store Fisherman's Wharf, and things weren't working out. At, um, it's not that things weren't working out uh, with a record distributor. It's just, again, you know, I mean, how many limited edition seven inches are you really going to sell of, you know, experimental, you know. To, su- to support a, an entire office of help. Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, not the most lucrative thing in the world. And um and then, uh, yeah, the relationship I was involved in, she uh, lost her job, too. And I think we just got to a point where we were like, all right, we're going to have to go back. Yeah, yeah. And um, no, I'm not sure what I necessarily took away from there that was positive or productive, because I think I actually came back and that probably... Um, cemented the idea for me that it's not necessarily important where you live it's more important to do something you want to do from anywhere um you know because i see so many people that you know when they're in their 20s and again i did this i moved to san francisco instead of you know brooklyn but you know i see people now that you know they go to cities i think out of college just because they don't really know what they want to do and they sort of view that as a step forward um but you know, their sometimes their living situations are not great. You know, money is very difficult, and they're working jobs that they hate. And um, particularly now, you know, when so many people can work from home and you can do so much online, I think I would steer people more towards um, not feeling the need to flock to a big city. Um, and again, San Francisco is great, New York is great, but 
you know, if you don't have the money, um, you know, I've said something in recent years, I may be poor, but at least I'm going to be poor my way, (laughs) you know, and I think that that's easier to do if you're living a little bit off the grid. Yeah. Um, so yeah. About young people. I mean, do you, do you, uh, interact with a lot of young people in the, the sort of cinema that you're covering and, uh, sharing and sometimes seeing in theaters? Um, what, I, what do you see as your audience? Do you ever think about you know, who you write for, the, 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 the Tavis Crawford audience? No, I, I don't very much now just because, I mean, you know, writing is such, you know, by nature kind of a, uh, you know, we were talking about how, you know, you change the way you watch films and it becomes something collective to something kind of solitary. And, I mean, writing is sort of a, by nature, a little bit of a hermetic you know, isolated endeavor, and I don't think too much now. I did when I programmed, obviously, for festivals, because, you know, you interact with audiences and you talk to people and everything, and, you know, that was one of the most enjoyable parts of it. But just in terms of, like, um, writing now, no, I don't I don't think too much about um, an audience. And I, you know, I do interact with a lot of um, people that are younger than myself on Facebook and everything, um, but, you know, I interact with people who, you know, I mean, you interact with people on social media who are of all ages. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't think I really think about it as much as I used to, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I get together once a week with a bunch of guys, I think, all younger than me and watch projected film, you know, uh, about 10 of us. But uh, but it's all younger people than me. And for me, it's a very interesting to sort of get that perspective about what what film means to, to younger people and uh, just, you know, even growing up you know, 15 or 20 years later, like you, you've come at it a very different way in a very different place. Do you um, find that you get along well with younger people? Yeah, yeah, I do, actually. I get along very, you know, I have a lot of young friends that are kind of closer. Yeah, I have a, I have a cafe here. next door to me that uh, does nothing but employ a stream of 20-something art school graduates who are just all delightful and interesting and all in horrible financial straits from the modern yeah. economy that we're serving up and for them being art school graduates as well. But I've I, I really come to admire, even though uh, they're being raised in a completely different world than I was, you know. Yeah, no, same here. I mean, I do tend to, um, I guess I do tend to socialize more with younger people and get along better with younger people. I mean, I have friends who are my exact age, a little bit older, a little bit younger. But, um, I mean, my girlfriend is 17 years younger than I am. So, I mean, there's a big age difference there. And, uh yeah, I mean, certainly, I think as you get older, the people you know who are your age tend to be, um, well, you know, you have that dynamic where you're friends with people when you're young and you're in your 20s and you sort of have similar interests and then as they get older, but I mean, you're married and you have a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of people who, you know, get married and have kids and go down that route tend to lose their interest in things that, you know, they were interested in when they were younger. And, you know, so you do kind of take diverging paths sometimes, you know, so people that I know. You can only talk about those old things you enjoyed together in your 20s and 30s so, so long, you know, like to get together every time and like that Evil Dead 2 screening was great, wasn't it? And those conversations are, I mean, yeah, it's fun for like five minutes and, you know, uh, 
the extent to which it could be fun after that, I think, depends in direct proportion on the amount of alcohol that's being poured. But, you know, yeah. I think this is probably the kind of thing, you know, uh, unsaid quietly to ourselves. We pat ourselves on the back about. But, I mean, for me, it was really interesting that uh, these friends that I did have such a strong uh, interest uh, in in these subjects with, that they they have peeled off and aren't interested anymore. And they kind of look at it as kind of odd that I would still nurse these... uh, these obsessions, but to me, that's you know part of the the, the lifeblood of uh, being excited about culture and life and uh, you know films to be seen. I, exactly, in any kind of art, it doesn't have to be film. I mean, you know, it can be um, you know literature, music, uh, painting, photography. But um, no, I mean, you you know, you know, people who get to a certain age and an appreciation for that or a passion for that kind of stuff really depreciates to the point where it's gone and you know it's very much about but i don't want to say this in like a disparaging way i mean you know i I think it's great you know that people i realize either they're dying or i'm endlessly immature right i don't know either of those are complimentary to to either of us i feel like in a couple times in this conversation (laughs) i feel like i've said things like it's two sides of the same coin yeah you know so i mean i'm sure you know, they are probably looking at me going, why are you still writing about film and, you know, programming film and, you know, you're in your mid forties, you know, and it seems very strange, but, uh, you know, me, I mean, I wouldn't know of any other way, Yeah. yeah. but, uh, yeah. So it's difficult for me to relate to old friends of mine whose lives are now completely dictated by little league or, you know, PTA meetings or whatever. The mortgage mortgage. Well, yeah. Well, I guess we could all be concerned. I was going to say. I mean, you know, money. I mean, money yeah, is a yeah. universal thing that oh, yeah. cuts through. You know, everything. Unfortunately, but that, that's something I have to admit I don't relate to is when they they start getting into real estate talks and talking about you know a couple of the properties they're turning over and all that kind of stuff. To me, that that doesn't seem like a passionate pursuit that I could myself take part in this well i don't even get those people because i think they realize within the first 10 seconds of that conversation i'm looking at them looking at them going i can't afford money for ramen <laughs> so fuck you <laughs> you know the idea that i'm gonna like talk about your multiple properties is just i think we need a bigger beach house <laughs> uh, it's that's just completely from an, an alien world to me so It's, it's interesting to, to look at these passions. Like, I feel like when I sort of, you know, signed on to being, you know, obsessed with the uh, recording industry as much myself, as mm-hmm. much as the, uh, as, as much as the film industry, but also, you know, signing on to, you know, uh, uh, having some place within the world of film, that, that it was something that seemed like much more of a, you know, possibly lucrative, sustainable passion. And uh, as time goes on, uh, there just seems to be a lot of uh, pressures that have uh, squelched, uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, film culture that I thought I'd be taking part of when I got into this. As the trajectory of, of how film is accepted in, in this world uh, changes, I don't know, where, where, where do you think this puts you and... Uh, what, what have you taken away from this? Well, it's your mean, experience. Yeah, I mean, when I started out, you know, my, uh, you know, sort of plan was to, you know, focus pretty much just on film journalism and do uh, feature articles for magazines. And that was at a point, you know, late 90s when um, 
there were still know, magazine stores. Right. Uh, which well, would have exactly. Yeah. Forty like, magazines. Yeah. On I film, mean, you, you, know? you could go into bookstores and you know or anything from like corporate stores like Borders to uh, you know comic book stores and little independent bookstores, and you would see like there was a rack of film magazines. You know, um, and this was before print media started to be killed off. Um, you know, by the internet, and then when that happened, and that. Uh, it, <sighs> You know, I could have had worse timing in terms of embarking on that career, you know, in terms of like, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s being like, oh, I want to make a living at, you know, print film journalism. It was like one step away from saying, how can I make money operating a teletype machine out of my Motorola kiosk in my blockbuster video franchise? You know, it was not the smartest thing in the world, I guess. There's, I, I, uh... I'm not a big TV watcher, really, but I am a fan of, of, of the Sopranos series. And right from the beginning, Tony Soprano has said something about uh, to the psychiatrist, I believe. I, I feel like we got here just as the party ended. Mm-hmm. And there was something about 2000, which, you know, was, uh, I don't know if it was talked about so much at the time or whatever, but it, there really was uh, something profoundly that was changing about uh, uh, America and the world and economics and everything around that time. Well, and then you had, you know, 2001. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. And, and I feel that, uh, indeed, there was a lot that changed in ways that uh, I feel like we didn't completely understand for years after yeah. that, you know. So I think from 2000, 2001, um, and then, of course, the bottom falling out of everything in 2008, yeah. you know, in 2009, um, it was just a very difficult time to do all that. But... Um, so, you know, at that time, I mean, that was my goal was I was going to write about film and and then uh, really I actually only got involved in programming the film festival because even back then I was like, okay, this is not sustainable, you know, and the sad fact of the matter is, you know, it's 2017 and I'm kind of back in the same boat, you know, where I'm trying to like actually make a living purely through freelance stuff, although it's not so much for magazines and websites now, it's doing... um Special features for you know a couple different video labels like yeah. Kino Lorber and Arrow Video. I mean, and some of your some of your best writing is the writing that you've done for. I know you did the notes for the Suspiria DVD, but there's there's been numerous DVDs that yeah. you've done, and, and more often commentaries, I guess these days. As well. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's the stuff that um, you know is kind of out there, and you know that I'm trying to make that work in terms of just you know piecemeal, you know, like freelance typical stuff um, where you can you know paycheck by paycheck. There was an article I saw someone post on Facebook uh, earlier this week, um, how to get started being a film critic, you know, how to break into the film criticism industry. And I'm just looking at this and I'm going, are you kidding me? You know, this is what you want to advise. This is the job that you want to advise people to like get into. You know, it's like you're the worst guidance counselor in the world. I, yeah. So now um, that Roger Ebert has died, there's a lot of room for film critics. God. And I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you're looking at a world where, um, Rex Reed, who don't get me wrong, is awful. Yeah. But, you know, got laid off from the observer, you know, and I mean, he's like, what, 162, 163, and he's been there for years and years. You know, it's not a field that... Uh, One of the last surviving sort of celebrity critics of that era, yeah. Maybe even the last one? I'm trying yeah. to think if there's anyone who's uh, comparable to that. Yeah. Um, did, did Andrew Saris write for The Observer at the end I believe well? he did. Yeah, uh, yeah. Don't hold me to that. I have to look that one up. Um, so, no, I, you know, I don't know. Um 
in terms of the just sort of the general subject of where film culture is, I don't feel like I have an answer for that. And I say that because I think um, Bill even asked me something related to that, you know, when we were doing the supporting characters and I didn't, um, I don't know. You know, I feel like I'd have to have more of an objective detachment from it and not be so mired in, you know, am I going to get paid next week? You know, that kind of a thing. You know, I feel like I'm too much in the trenches of like trying to make a living from, you know, scrounging around in this um, to to really figure that out. That was a depressing note to end that on. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Artistically, uh, the thing that we're not talking about, and I think it's probably not a big focus of ours, and yet the conversation seems to be going around a lot now of cinema being really over and the the feature film being over and all the energy these days is on television. Yeah. Um, What is your... uh, Do you watch much television? Do you see much episodic TV? Um, Actually, that's that's a lie. I watch a lot of television um, more as sort of like background drone... So I'm not sure if you could call it watching television. It's like, you know, anything from the news to, um, you know, I mean, I watch uh, some of the satirical current event stuff, you know, like Bill Maher and John Oliver yeah. and Samantha Bee and uh, then, um, you know, reruns of Roseanne and Cheers, or Mary Tyler Moore show, that kind of thing. It's it's more like that sort of stuff I've never gotten into. Um, I, I'm i not proud about this because I'm, I'm about to say something that's going to sound like, I've never been to a rodeo in my life. You know, like you're stating this like it's an accomplishment. I've never keep, seen... <laughs> like, keep it up. If, if, if you keep going, it'll be the most distinctive thing about you at your funeral. <laughs> right. <laughs> People grasping onto what they haven't done as a substitute for anything they you know, have done. Um, I, no, I've never seen an episode of Breaking Bad. I've never seen an episode of The Sopranos. I've never seen uh, an episode of Game of Thorns. Um, Game of Thrones. Uh, what's it called? Game of Thrones. Oh, I thought it was about people that got impaled on thorns. <laughs> ah. What's it actually about? <laughs> I've never seen an episode of it. <laughs> oh, well, maybe I'll yeah. take a look now. You said I, I mean, I, I have, uh, I have watched. Uh, you know, I have. There's a handful that I've, I've embraced over the years. I've watched Mad Men. I've watched Sopranos. I've watched Six Feet Under. Oh, I have seen every episode of Six Feet Under, and I actually watched that religiously. That would be the exception to the rule. And I would watch Mad Men. Actually, I would watch any of those shows yeah. that I mentioned. I mean, I think one day, um, you know, when I find out that I'm dying, you know, I'll, I'll buy like the box sets of Breaking Bad and The Wire and The Sopranos, yeah. and I'll start from the beginning and watch all the way through. Um, I think there's only one more I had to add to that: The Walking Dead. I think that might be the complete. Okay, I saw know, the first television. season of The Walking Dead, which yeah. was just god awful. Uh, the reason I got pulled into it because my 12 year old son is a big fan of it uh, I think the same sort of space that uh, westerns held in the young kids minds now like the, the apocalyptic zombie thing is you know the basic sort of play yard play template sometimes I've thought about the fact that you know I would like to have children just so I can be inadvertently exposed to crap that I wouldn't watch otherwise <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and music yeah exactly yeah um, no, but I no, I saw the first season of Walking Dead. I, I I didn't like it at all. I think I saw the first three seasons of that True Blood thing. I thought that was awful too. Oh, yeah. I think that's another thing is actually like when this whole golden age of television renaissance was happening. I feel like I picked the wrong shows to have watched. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like um, you know, imagine being like in the '60s and you wanted yeah, to yeah. transition to a particular type of music and. 
you didn't own a single album by the Beatles or the Stones, but you decided to really be into Strawberry Alarm Clock. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, became a Sunny and Cher fan. Right. right. <laughs> so it's sort of like, I, I think my pathway into this was kind yeah. of like damaged. Um, so, yeah. So I watched like, um, you know, I mean, things that were like horror genre stuff like Walking Dead and True Blood. And I was like, these are awful. I don't want to see anymore. Um, but no, I did see all of Six Feet Under. I, I have seen a few episodes of Mad Men and I've liked what I've seen. But like most of these shows, it's very chronologically dependent. And I was kind of like being dropped in the middle. So I had no context for it. I haven't started from the beginning. I, I was attracted to seeing you know The Wire, which I'd heard so much about. Yeah, it seems here. like you know a lot of things that would interest me. But at this point, I just feel like, you know, when am I really going to say that I'm ready to devote myself to 100 hours of something or whatever, you know? Well, you know something else? I, I was talking to Heather, my girlfriend, about this not long ago. And I said, one of the things that makes me skeptical about this theory that... Um, you know, the golden age of television is the new art house cinema and that house of cards is the new parallax view or all the president's men or whatever is that once these things go off the air, you don't hear about them um, very often. You know, I mean, there are exceptions. People still talk about the Sopranos and, you know, people still talk about some of these shows, you know, in the few months after they've gone off the air, but they seem like television to me in the sense that the conversation seems very fleeting and momentary, which leads me to believe that the work itself is probably fairly disposable when compared to film. It doesn't seem like it has the endurance in terms of the conversation that films have. Yeah, I mean, I guess this, is, uh, this isn't what you hear all the time these days in the media is two people talking about how bad television is. But, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm maybe not even bad isn't really not the right word, but to, to characterize what it is and, and why it has left me unattracted in the way that I'm attracted to independent film and the feature film. Um, I think, number one, that, that, it, that it is meant to appeal to like a million eyes at once. And, and there's True. Yeah. real decisions that need to get made uh, um, in order to uh, you know have a, a story that has that kind of appeal. Mm-hmm. And that really made me think for, for all the amount of embrace that has gone on to the classic blockbusters of Star Wars and mm-hmm. the, the Aliens franchise and all this stuff that uh, as, as much as I enjoyed those films it's, the film has always been most interesting to me in the sidelines and you know pretty much all my favorite films are the films that were sort of personal films that weren't you know, made to appeal to the, all of the all of the mainstream, and with with television, it, it seems inherently that it, that it's a, a mainstream Medium. genre. Yeah, in a way that's that true. Yeah, film um, isn't. Yeah, there's not too many examples of niche television. You know, I mean, obviously the and this is an exception to the rule in terms of me not following television because this is something that I watch religiously every Sunday as the revival of Twin Peaks. Oh yeah. Um, but you look, which is an outlier in so many ways, it, you know? indeed, but One of that's a few director driven television shows. Well, exactly. And that's something that is only able to be that because it has the luxury of, you know, a series that was on network, you know, 25 years ago. So it has a nostalgia factor for people as well as, you know, Lynch's name. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a rarity. Uh, most television is not able to be as marginal as that series is. Uh, so you're right. So I think that it is sort of aiming for, um, yeah, it is aiming for a more general audience. Whereas you're right, the films that we remember and we talk about, I mean, not exclusively, but, you know, generally are things that um, were a little more on the fringes at the time that they were released and recognized more, you know, 
in some cases years after the fact. When I was uh, uh, living in San Francisco, I had a very close friend who worked for Bear Magazine, the magazine for men who like Harry Burley men. Uh, you know, uh, I thought that was a more like contemporary term. I didn't even know that was out there in the nineties. At least in the nineties, I think okay. before. But uh, oh, okay. uh, but yeah, niche thing, you know. Uh, and he was the editor for there for for a while. And he told me that every day he opened the the mail. This is connected, by the way. I wasn't just you know, doing this for pure titillation's sake. Um, but he had opened the mail there, and he and it would just be pictures of penises, and it would just be penis, 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 penis. And as much as he enjoyed penises, he thought, you know, I'm looking for that picture. You know, I see thousands of penises. I'm looking for that picture that's something different that I haven't seen before. And he made the connection. You're kind of the same way in music and in film. Like you, you've, you've, I've seen a million penises at this point. I kind of want to see something different. Where if you're not that into film, you know, seeing those old sort of stories acted out and, you know, is is novel enough. But if you're somebody who sees a lot and a lot of films, then you want to see something you haven't seen before. And hence the sort of niche, non-mainstream stuff that I been attracted to it well what's that um how many stories are there that are told in films quote unquote robert altman has like used five or six or something like that i've heard it boiled down to two that it's uh, a man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town and it's it's shocking how many things fit comfortably into someone should just do a tv series where those two things are intercut in the most minimalist (laughs) brisson like way possible almost no dialogue a man's on a journey cut back to a stranger comes into town that's it that's the whole show my son will now stop me in in the middle of a film and say dad is this a man coming to town or is this a you know uh, a stranger goes on a journey wow Mm. i'm trying to think of films that do combine that um, it's funny. For some reason, the first movie that came to mind was Paris, Texas, which is not probably accurate. But anyway, but um, I thought, of course, yeah, you know. that would be a good one too. Um, yeah, no, but I was going to say that um, I think that if you're watching TV or you're watching film, you know, like a normal person, you don't mind seeing those stories. We can only we can only project into right, what that right. might be I mean, like. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's a big deal to see variations on the same, however many number of stories there are out there. Um, because you're not always going to be rigidly aware of that kind of formula. Um, But I think if you're watching films and, you know, television series on a regular basis, the, um, the skeleton becomes a lot more, the structure becomes a lot more visible and apparent and everything seems more artificial. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to inherently be uh, drawn to things that break away from that. But again, I think that that is, a specialty focus, a specialty interest. I mean, that, you know, that is for, I remember once recommending a movie to someone who was not a movie person, you know, we were talking about how like movies yeah. have to appeal to all audiences. And, and she just said, um, Oh, that sounds like the kind of movie that like you would like, or people would like who like watch a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and she was just sort of saying it as this offhand comment. And I was like, that's, more accurate than you know because you're right (laughs) you know it is for people that you know want something that's going to deviate from you know formula but i mean i know people that not only are not interested in deviating from formula but actively pursue that you know and want that and you know want that kind of like reassurance and uh, well i've noticed myself if there's something that makes me particularly like a film Mm -hmm. it's exactly that element that will make a lot of people particularly dislike that film you know. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm always fascinated by films with uh, traditionally unsympathetic protagonists. Yeah. You know, I mean, to me, particularly if they're women, because I think that's something you don't see that often. Did you see that movie with um, 
It's almost like an unofficial remake of Gloria with Tilda Swinton. I was thinking exactly the same film. Julia. Julia. Love that movie. Yeah. And you so rarely... Eric Zonka, the guy that directed Dream Life of Angels, which is another personal favorite of mine. You so rarely see like that depiction of a of a woman in a film where I mean she just goes for being completely unsympathetic <laughs> unlikable and of course completely sympathetic by the end of the movie yeah, you know because yeah. you're totally willing to accept her as a three dimensional human being in a way that most actresses don't get to do that character well I mean it was very interesting too because I mean sort of playing to Tilda Swinton's strengths is that she's a very intelligent woman and, and her character's intelligence almost always comes off right. come off in this film where she's a, you know, a problem drinker an right. alcoholic or whatever right. she's often the only person who doesn't realize that she's telling a transparent oh. lie that everybody else can know right, right. so so you're taking this person who's always most intelligent and you're seeing her sort of you know uh, at a disadvantage in a way that you don't usually see her I, I found that to be a fascinating yeah. film yeah yeah no I mean that's 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 great. Um, she's like somebody in a basic sense, like lying to the boss about why she's late. And like, you know, it's a lie. The boss knows it's a lie. But there's something excruciating about her trying to sell something that, you know, can't be sold. You but know? she doesn't. Another great thing about that film is she doesn't. You know, I think so many times when actors play, um, quote unquote, unsympathetic characters or characters who have um, flaws or issues there, they tend to over dramatize that particular part of the yeah. person you know like i can't remember who said this but um one actor was like talking to another actor about you know they wanted advice on how to play drunk in a film and the one actor said the way the best way to play drunk is to not play drunk to play like a drunk person trying to be sober because that's what drunk people actually do <laughs> is they're trying to like mask it and, and just yeah. try to be as normal as possible while you're not actually holding it together. I think that is the wavelength that Swinton works. At exactly. Yeah. And that's what's great about that is that she's not, um, yeah, she's not overplaying that dynamic. So <laughs> if anyone gets anything out of this podcast, please go and read Julia, the, your earliest convenience. <laughs> talking about san francisco prior to that no are you doing out there not a whole heck of a lot um i just sort of went to get out of the area and um i liked san francisco just because of what i'd seen in films i had no personal experience with it it was just sort of like all right well let's move very far away to a city that looked good in dirty harry and um, (laughs) i knew one person there when i moved there in 91 that's that's the year I moved. That's oh, funny. really? Yeah, yeah. that's I, funny. I, no, I, I moved the same year. I'm surprised we didn't get a job at the same place because I... Where did you work? I got a job at LaVidia. I would have killed to have worked at LaVidia. <laughs> I applied there. I applied to... Do you remember Naked Eye on Hate? Absolutely, sure. I applied to Naked Eye on Hate. Um, I applied to Rough Trade. Uh-huh. Um, no, and I wound up I working that. for... Um, I don't know if you know a musician named Kim Cascone. Um, he does sort of ambient industrial stuff and he, okay. yeah. and he had offices and kind of a big open space in the mission. I worked there doing, doing sales, but like cold call sales when there were already like two existing salespeople there. So it would be my gig to, and we had like these phone book size directories of all the record stores in the country. 
So it would be my gig to like cold call record stores in Oklahoma to see if they wanted to carry Fushitsusha Japanese imports. You know, this is like, so as you can imagine, it was not the most successful endeavor. Do you have a Japanese noise section at your store? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's have like, I got a release for you, you know? Yeah. And you're talking about someone who's like, you know, selling eight tracks out of, you know, a farmer's market <laughs> in Tulsa, you know? So it was not the most lucrative, uh, lucrative job in the world. But I did that and I also worked at, oh, I also worked at the worst job I've ever had, which was in this tourist trap gift store in Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, It's like a couple blocks away from uh, Gary Deli, you know, their their big thing there. And it was in one of these like, you know, kind of like cannery buildings that had been transformed into kind of an open, you know, where the stores are all like, you know, you can move in and out of there. Always kind of damp. Yeah, and um, filled nothing but, you know, tourists buying, um, you know, sweatshirts with, you know, uh, Golden Gate Bridge on them and that kind of thing. And um, and I worked there, and it was run by uh, these three tyrannical Iranian brothers who played deafening New Age music on a loop all day long. <laughs> it was really, uh, it was just a horrible job. I applied for a job to work in an adult bookstore uh, between the hours of midnight and 8 a.m. On, mar- on market. On market. Tenderloin. I can't remember the exact cross street. I can imagine the neighborhood in my mind, though, now, you know, for sure. Very much, you know, you walk in. You would um, be perfect in that job, by the way. I don't know how to take that, Dan, <laughs> but... <laughs> It would I, underline. I guess. Would under, thank you. It would I, underline the James Woods quality that's you know sort of is uh, you know leaking. From the well, you know what? I, I, in retrospect, I wish I would have taken the job and only worked it for like a month because I'm sure that one month would have given me a lifetime's worth of great stories. <laughs> um, but you know, it's very much the kind of thing you go in and it's like um, VHS tapes and you know magazines and. Books. Who buys adult books? I was always fascinated. That these things um, are, were called adult bookstores, yeah. you know, and they and there would be these um, paperback shrink wrapped sometimes paperback books, you know. And this we're talking the nineties here, you yeah, know, and yeah. we're looking at like, you know, things that you would expect to find selling for thirty five cents, you know, with these hand drawn covers, uh, you I, know, I, this girl was bad, you know, and these and I'm like, who's <laughs> buying this in nineteen ninety one? I will admit, in 1979 or 80, I took one from my brother, Country Cousin Comes to the City by Seattle Frank. And that has sort of stood for all of the paperback (laughs) porno genre for me and for a 15-year-old perfectly, my speed. I just, you know, when you could, you know, we're talking a a time here where for years you could have bought issues of Penthouse Forum at a bus stop. You know, I don't know why (laughs) you would go to an adult bookstore and buy a shrink-wrapped paperback. Of, shrink wrapped <laughs> I just I, I couldn't understand it at all but that was a big part of you know the opening store you know the storefront and then you would go back and they had the um, peep show booths in a long corridor in the back and uh, you know and a lot of <laughs> I was going to use I was going to use the term marital aids which I don't think anyone has used in <laughs> like 20-30 years I don't know why I was going to say that sex toys and um and then, you know, the peep show booth. So I went in and um, I had to go upstairs and it was very much. Um, the I'm, ups- already, I'm already afraid. Hearing, hearing well, the, the upstairs, upstairs office was, I, I was going to say it was like something out of, um, I was going to use a De Palma reference. And it was like something out of body double or blowout. But I don't actually think that what I 
I'm imagining was in Body Double or Blowout. Where I'm imagining it's, Dennis France's office. Exactly. Well, Street. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It was that kind of thing where it was an upstairs office above the store that was lit, that was littered with framed posters for porn films. Um, I have no idea whether they produced or had anything to do with that or not. I mean, it, you know, it's not like I was, you know, just in case you're wondering, the end of this, the punchline of the story isn't like, and I was talking to the Mitchell brothers. That's not, you know, the ending of the story. I have no idea who these guys were. But um, they interviewed me for a long period of time. And um, it was very much like, um, are you comfortable with this? Are you comfortable with this? Have you ever, or has any member of your immediate family ever been employed by a law enforcement agency of the United States? <laughs> and I said, no, you know, and it was a long process. And I, I actually did think even back then as a kid, I should totally take this job and work it for a month at midnight to 8 a.m. in like the worst part of San Francisco just for the stories I could tell. And the only reason I didn't take it is because uh, to get the job, they wanted me to take a polygraph where I would have had to have taken a bus to Stockton and paid $100 out of pocket for the polygraph myself. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not going to do that. That's you know. pretty heavy. What, 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 what did they think you're, I mean, it sounds like they, they thought you were an FBI agent trying it to infiltrate It was very much geared around them making sure that I was not a mole, you know, like that I was not, which, which did kind of make me wonder. I mean, I'm very amoral and unethical, so it's not that I would have cared, but it did make me wonder, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, if you're running a straightforward, you know, adult bookstore, with peep shows in the back. By the way, the peep shows was not like live stuff. It was just um, the loops, fifty channel loops. Exactly. That was all Isn't it was. that amazing that like this that that machine is in our house now with much more than fifty channels? Yeah, I know. I, well, I still don't understand. I mean, um, when did the forum close in Philly? <laughs> Only, Jesus Christ! A couple years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, the last person who didn't have an internet connection was like the regular customer, I guess. Eric and I were trying to. I don't know if I should tell the story. Actually. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the adventures in the forum. <laughs> Eric and I, at one point when he was starting up the Cynadelphia Festival, uh, one year we wanted to do a uh, all night marathon of seventies adult films um, at the forum. Oh wow! And uh, we talked to. Uh, I just think Eric was actually the person that um, talked to the owner of the building, who um, was mafia. Yeah. You know, and who were connected to... um, Not unusual in the adult film industry. (laughs) No, I don't know why I'm phrasing this. Like, that's some kind of, like, unusual rarity. Um, But connected to a a well-established crime family in Jersey and New York. (laughs) And uh, I think... I wish Eric was here to tell this part of the story because I think it was like he was talking to them because he was going to work out the, you know, the physical reality of renting the space for a night. And and, uh, the guy was like every... uh, stereotype you would have of like a mafia person that would own who lived in Jersey and who would own a porn theater in Center City Philly. And um and we were gonna and I we were like close to doing it and then they had the contract to just tear the building down and develop the property. Oh, you wow. know, that's now a parking lot. So that's um, a sad ending. Yeah. yeah. So we were gonna do that. Um <laughs> I mean I worked in in North Beach in San Francisco. At one point we brought in video gambling machines to the store 
I think I'd opened a record store with the same guy who had the postcard store mm-hmm. uh, around this time at this point. Yeah. And it was a, you know, not a not a prosperous record store, unfortunately. So we brought in video poker games. And next thing you know, here are like the Italian mobsters from North Beach coming in, talking about like how much money we can make with the video porn, the video uh, gambling machine. But yeah, we have yeah, to yeah. give some money to them. And, you know, it was sort of like like they were imported out of, you know, a... a Carol Burnett skit or something, you know, like they were just full-on Italian mob guys. I guess it was naive. That seems so anachronistic to my view of San Francisco. And, you know, like I never came across that. Um, North Beach was the Italian section. And so they're... I guess I didn't spend a lot of time there. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I... Uh, no, Mission, you know, I was working there. Fisherman's Wharf, I was working there. Rich- the, the young mob guy was my age. And, and uh, I, I got a sense of the ennui of him, like, in the sort of fading mob scene there and, like, not being much business. And he kind of wanted to buddy up a little more than I was a little comfortable with. But, oh, uh, God. But it, it seemed like he was, it was just another element of the failing economy sort of, you know, winding down for, for him as well. Yeah, no. I mean, I, um, I'm trying to think of I was sort of trying to remember what the stereotyped makeup was of the porn guy that I was like interviewing with above the adult bookstore. And I don't, um, he seemed very kind of generic and anonymous, um, seedy, but in a really like, you know, and another day of the week, it could have been a realtor, you know, (laughs) like that kind of seediness, not like seedy, like mafia porn necessarily seedy. There's a couple filmmakers who you're, you've written a lot about who you're, I guess you're sort of connected to as uh, uh, being, uh, you know, a foremost, uh, you know, adherent. Uh, I was, in my mind at least, uh, Dario Argento, who right. you've interviewed a number of times, times, and, yeah. and uh, Brian De Palma. I've never interviewed or met De Palma, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Have you written about him? Yeah, here and there. I mean, I did a long piece on Blowout for a filmmaker. I think it was strictly an online thing. It didn't. Am I right that you're more than a casual fan of his work? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, While also fully admitting that there are um, awful De Palma films, just as there are awful Argento films. But uh, I would rather follow their work religiously and, you know, see them go for broke and fail spectacularly than, you know. There's something to be learned, and I often feel even more so in, in, in a director's worst films that, uh, you know, seeing the work that they do when it doesn't come together can be revealing in, in ways that successful films aren't. Uh, I definitely think that that's more accurate for De Palma than Argento, simply because I think Argento has been on sort of an unfortunate autopilot meets downward spiral for 20 years, whereas I think De Palma. Uh, I haven't liked anything De Palma's done in a while. I didn't like Passion. I didn't like Redacted. I didn't like Black Dahlia. Um, I would be interested in seeing his original cut of Black Dahlia, which was apparently about an hour longer, and it was uh, hacked down without his input. But I'm not sure that necessarily would have saved it. I mean, I love the Elroy novel that it was based on, but I think it might have been kind of unadaptable. But I think De Palma's at least still playing with territory that finds him moving in you know, interesting directions. And you can't try to think what his most recent film is. I think it's Passion. Passion. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't catch that one. Um, 
that seemed like kind of a uh, that seemed like to De Palma what Sleepless was to Argento, which was kind of a lazy self-parody that attempted <laughs> to revive you know better past glories. But um, no, so you know I, I mean I still hold out hope for I mean I'll still see everything that both those directors make, but uh, you know I still hold out hope for. Uh, De Palma, and yeah, indeed, the failures can still be interesting. I think Redacted is a terrible film, but I thought it was interesting to see him work um, back in a political arena, which you know used to be a focus of his when he was first starting yeah, out in yeah. filmmaking. So um, he, he sort of, you know, the stereotype has become the sort of Hitchcock, you know, knockoff, knockoff. Right. <laughs> I'm sure they'd hate to be called that, but you know, these sort of Hitchcock-inspired. You know, thrillers, sexual driven thrillers. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he's, he's much more an expansive filmmaker in that. When you look at you know things like High Mom and Greetings mm-hmm. and Phantom of the Paradise, and uh, or for that know. matter, even if you wanted to look at his Gun for Hire work, um, there's nothing to be ashamed of with The Untouchables or The First Mission Impossible or Scarface. You know, I mean, things that he was doing as more studio assignments that deviated from you know the usual Dress to Kill body double type dynamic of his films uh, but you know I would much rather see his gun for hire work than that done by uh, you know Ron Howard or something I mean you know, it's, and he's just coming to mind because of the whole hand solo thing yeah it's, it's interesting the, the, the actors or the directors that uh, grew up sort of lionizing in the 70s mm-hmm. and, and where they're at today to think of people like William Friedkin and Walter yeah. Hill and yeah. People that are, are. Did you see that last Walter Hill film? I I would love to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, it's it's got the transgender. Right, Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did you think of it? Um, it? Kind of similar to what I was just saying about De Palma. I mean, I think it's an interesting film, and I like that he's you know an older filmmaker from you know his key work is in the seventies, who's doing something in kind of a new direction. I don't think it really works, um, but it. It's not that it doesn't work because of, you know, incompetence in the filmmaking or anything like that. It doesn't work because it employs sort of a um, flashback video diary structure that goes along two separate timelines and that makes it kind of lose momentum. Um, And also the action sequences are a little bit anemic, so it never really takes off. Surprising for Water Hill. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think budget-wise it seems a little constricted. Yeah, I wonder wonder whether that isn't the hidden roots of the failures of some so many of these films but i think of so many that uh, uh, throw you know paul schrader in there and the, the later work of francis ford coppola like you wonder it seems like these should, they should be making at least their most confident films of all time i think of like the later films of john houston or something where you know that that you know they were they seem to be exactly what he wanted to make in a lot of ways and yet they seem so scattershot and, and lost in this new landscape in some yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, it would be um, interesting. Well, you know something? I haven't seen a Coppola film in a while, so I didn't see um, Twixt. Twixt and Youth Without Youth. I didn't see that either, um, so it's been a while for me in any Coppola films. They seemed like the, 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 the bumblings of a you know somebody right out of film school. It was just hard to even place how this connected to what his you know film history has been. I wonder why that is the case with a lot of um, directors from that era, because you would think that they would at least kind of, um, I hate this term, but like gracefully progress into doing smaller, more personal films. Like you mentioned, you know, sort of the twilight films of, you know, great directors who are at least able to narrow their focus and do accomplished intimate work. And instead it does seem, um, 
you know, like you said, very scattershot. Like they're trying to stay modern in some sort of ways, it, it seems like. Uh, did you see the canyons? Yeah, I did see the canyons. Uh, I don't think that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's good either. <laughs> But I, I don't think it's an embarrassment. No, you know? no. And especially for, I mean, that was one that was, you know, the problems with that production right. became legendary. Right. Uh, yeah. You're a big Lindsay Lohan fan, actually, <laughs> aren't you? Uh, yeah, I am. Although that's very difficult to sustain, I guess, over the years. I mean, it's been a long time since she's done anything. I Know a, Who Killed Me? Was that a... Oh, have you seen that? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's not good. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a kind word to say about it because I know people that genuinely like that film and... Um, no, that's that's not good. No. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting film for her to release at that point. I mean, that's you true. didn't know what to expect from her at that point, I don't think. Yeah, actually, I mean, that would be... Uh, I, I think she has recently signed on to be a regular in a British television series, yeah, yeah. Um, a comedy thing, which, you know... Uh, I think it would be interesting if she completely broke away from her, you know, Disney past and did something that was very... Uh, bold and transgressive and experimental which i think is sort of what the canyons was a half-hearted stab at yeah. doing and didn't really work um yeah but it'd be she, i mean it's interesting i mean because i guess originally with disney it was all about her being you know fresh-faced youth or whatever right. and now she I, her performances remind me of you know the later performances of, of, of elizabeth taylor yeah which is a shame she, because she sort of did you see that um tv movie that she did where she actually played liz taylor no i didn't oh it's terrible but um <laughs> which is a shame yeah. Because I would have loved it if instead of focusing on, you know, the typical Richard Burton, you know, tabloid romance, very kind of quick summary of all those years, if it had just been this sort of like, um, you know, like a feud, Bet versus Joan type specific elongated focus on the making of like. Boom. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, what was one of the other? I, I was going to say um, Virginia Woolf, but oh, yeah. what was the other thing she did? Um, Suddenly last summer, maybe? Not later than that. The thing with Robert Foster, Reflections of Golden Eye, Reflections oh, of Golden yeah. Eye. Yeah. I thought it would have been great if it had been like about that. You know, if you would like, just like had a film about the making of that and you had Lohan playing Elizabeth Taylor and, uh, you know, yeah, very kind of rough circumstances during a making of a film like that but I mean that was obviously not the way they decided to go uh, are you really a fan of old Hollywood at all because that's something no I'm not that's kind of like a uh, little bit of a gray area dead zone for me you know I mean there's chapters in uh, you know classic Hollywood stuff that I've, I've probably seen more film noir than a lot of people um some of the 30s pre-code stuff, you know, I was focused on for a little while, but that was a long time ago. Uh, but no, it's interesting because uh, there was a conversation that came up recently about um, gaps in film education, you know, where there are these movies that people sort of assume everyone has seen and you'll be in a conversation with someone and, you know, you'll reference something and they're like, oh, I don't know what that is. And, you, you know, you're like, you haven't seen Gone with the Wind or you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz. and But there will be a lot of, times that people will reference uh classic hollywood films and now it was never an area of focus because by the time i was you know in my 20s and that should have been maybe like you know an area that i would devote a lot of time to watching and there would be like patches where i would do that where i would like you know i remember in my 20s i would like obsessively watch every garbo film i could find or every robert mitchum film i could find um but then if you moved outside of that 
you know, I was watching, you know, every Jess Franco film (laughs) or every Jean Roland film, you know, so, you know, I, there are definitely things that, um, I've neglected Westerns, for example, are like very, um, you know, I mean, I've seen the obvious John Ford stuff that I felt like I needed to see, um, you know, some Howard Hawks things, you know, Rio Bravo and, you know, obvious classics. But other than that, um, you know, then, you know, I've probably seen more Italian Westerns than I've seen like, you know, classic American Westerns. So no, that's definitely an area there where, um, I mean, it's funny, the work I've started doing on special features for Kino Lorber and Arrow, you know, I would talk to producers there and, you know, they would send me a list of titles that were, they were working on. And, you know, particularly with Kino Lorber, it would be like, uh, you know, like a list of like 30 films and, you know, there would just be one where I would go, yeah, okay, I can do that. You know, because the rest of it would be like very much classic Hollywood studio stuff that they were uh, restoring and releasing that was just really outside of, you know, any area of interest, let alone expertise that I ever had. Yeah, I mean, so. I, I would guess for me, you know, maybe those five years of being older, uh, you're talking about, you know, being at, at, uh, at the mercy of, of the diet of films that were being offered out by t- television. If I wanted to watch a movie, you know, it, it would often be an old Holly, black and white Hollywood movie were, were the only things that were on. So, you know, I was led to those, you know, probably more strongly than you might have been, you know, yeah. in, the, in the age of the video where you could really make those choices yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once, you know, in 84, uh, you know, when the family got a VCR and I was able to kind of, you know, explore everything on my own, I I didn't lean towards, um, you know, classic Hollywood studio fare the way I probably would have if it had just been a few years earlier because by that point everything was... Well, and even when I was watching, um, you know, a lot of UHF stuff as a kid in the 70s and the early 80s, you know, I mean, I talked about the fact that my earliest TV viewing memories are not, you know, The Wizard of Oz or It's a Wonderful Life. They were Don't Look in the Basement and, <laughs> you know, Phantasm and De Palma's Sisters and, um, you know, in my earliest memories of seeing films in a theater, you know, it wasn't Fantasia or Bambi. It was Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, you know, and I mean, so I guess... I don't know. I mean, I'd have to go into a more analytical thing about, you know, like whether or not you're hardwired to gravitate towards a specific type of film. I mean, as a kid, you know, you don't have any framework or context for that or whether, I don't know, that just coincidentally yeah. happened. I'm not sure. Talk about going to the movies with your mother. Was she particularly a film buff? It sounds like she probably was. No, actually not really. Um, I mean, she liked films in sort of the casual way everyone Likes films, but I think she's... Not everybody was heading out to Nosferatu with the Klaus Kinski. Well, that was me, though. Oh, you know, really? Even at nine years old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I owned a small-sized Eraserhead t-shirt at that time. You know? I, I, so, I mean, that was, that was very much me, something at a very young age. Yeah. Um, that was not, uh, you know, and kind of uh, begging her to take me to see things like that at the state. And... Um, yeah, where where was the the impetus for you to to, to seek out horror films? Uh, for, for me, I was a famous monsters of Filmland had me roped in uh, very early uh, in, into uh, you know really loving horror films. Um, <clears throat> I'm not entirely sure because I didn't really you know the films that were on um, TV and were more commonly known in the '70s. I mean, even as late as you know the '70s, were things like. Um, more traditional creature feature type 
stuff, uh, you know, the classic Universal monster films, the Hammer horror films of the 60s and all the, you know, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing stuff. And I was never into any of that. You know, that that always kind of left me cold. Um, And then it really was seeing low-budget American independent things like Don't Look in the Basement and Phantasm and Sisters and um, uh, a truly awful film called Encounter with the Unknown narrated by Rod Serling featuring some of the same cast members as Don't Look in the Basement, which I don't misconstrue me mentioning that film as an even partial recommendation for it because I caught up with it a few years ago. And I was like, oh, God, this is terrible. I saw it in WOR. Uh, Channel 9. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's how I saw a lot that was of those when films. We first got, yeah. That's when we first got cable. And yeah. uh, I was excited to see things out of the New York viewing area. And that was one of the first things Secaucus, I remember seeing. New Jersey, like, I believe. They haven't one. shown this in Philadelphia. It really I know. was uh, That's how I saw a lot of those movies. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, I've talked about this before. I but I, After Wrestling on Saturday night, actually, is when I saw it. Uh, it Film, those films were a big influence when I was a kid, as well as, um, well, you're old enough to remember the UHF days of 172948. Yeah. Um, was it Black Belt Theater on Saturday or Sunday afternoon? The martial arts films were a big influence. Um, I, I always just thought they looked so horrible. Um, I mean, I guess they were pan and scan copies. They were pan and scan of, <laughs> of things that were like shot in scope. They yeah. were um, um, no, that was that that stuff was uh, big for me at the time. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, Equinox was another one that sort of stood I out didn't as, see that until years later. Actually, I like that movie a lot. But but it, there was, was something that you knew you weren't in Hollywood film territory. That well, this is interesting. I mean, yeah, because I'm trying to think of you know how. You, you're talking about like how I became interested in horror films. And I don't know how much of that was interested in um, the macabre subject matter and how much of it was kind of interested in um, marginal filmmaking that was off the beaten path. You know, like I almost think like if I had had the opportunity to commercially say um, more quote unquote serious American independent film at that time, I might've, gravitated just as much to that you know i don't know um yeah i'm not sure it's funny i mean i really started out into all horror films same way i started out into comic books and a lot of things Mm. but i I really moved away i think by by my late teens and it and i still saw that stuff and had that interest but i was very much into the 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 more uh you know you know naturalistic uh 70s sort of crime films and and uh, in, independent dramas and character studies. I only really came back to horror even, much more seriously when I moved back to Philadelphia in 2000 because that was so much of the sort of repertory scene here. Um, I think that we're very similar in our backgrounds in that sense, although mine didn't have anything to do with um, repertory programming in Philadelphia. And um, it was a little earlier. I think it was mid-90s for me. I did the same thing. Like, you know, you look at all these horror films from the 80s and 90s that are being... Um, resurrected on Blu-ray and DVD now. And, you know, I'll look at, like, the listings for what's coming out. And it's uncanny the degree to which I sort of checked out around 88 or 89 um, and then came back more in the mid-'90s because of um, bootleg VHS trading, predominantly of, like, European and Asian horror films. I think working at the video store, I think you might have mentioned this uh, at one point, Video Search of Miami was this magical company that... Had films that you know were unable to, to to get anywhere else really. 
And unfortunately, they were all transferred through uh, a mud pond that was 100 <laughs> feet underwater. You, you really had to have that dedication that you were just going to watch the the uh, grainiest, foggiest version, but yeah. maybe letterboxed. Yeah, yeah, occasionally. <laughs> Midnight video was better in that category. Oh, yeah. There were like, um, you know, Video Search of Miami was sort of like, uh, you know, if you're going to make a liquor store analogy, they were like the bottom shelf $8 bottle vodka, <laughs> even though they were charging $25, whereas you had companies like Midnight and Luminous who were more like, you know, Grey Goose and Kettle One on the top shelf. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you, you really did have to muddle through a lot of stuff, but that's kind of when I came back into it. Um, yeah, and I, and I was writing about horror films uh, at what, that point. What were the films that were interesting you that were, that were drawing you back? Late '90s. I'm not sure how much of that was really contemporary, and how much of that was the opportunity to kind of revisit uh, '70s and '80s European and Asian mm, horror sure. films that I didn't have the opportunity to see back then. I don't think I actually. This is kind of embarrassing to admit to this. I'm not sure I really got back into contemporary horror films until I had to for programming reasons in 2000, 2001. Hmm. Um, I mean, there were a couple isolated things that I had to cover as a journalist prior to that. Uh, you know, the original Blair Witch Project, you know, yeah. in 99, yeah. I guess I did this stuff on that for Fangoria. But um, I guess Scream was one of the sort of definitive sort of reemergence of the hard genres. Yeah. In and the I 90s. remember not caring that for that at all. Yeah. Um, I think I've only ever seen the first one in that series. I've never seen any of the subsequent entries, but I remember going to that with a friend of mine whose name I can't remember now, unfortunately. Um, it was just someone I knew for a couple of years. And Neither Scream nor this friend obviously yeah, impressed you. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a guy who went to Tulane. He was younger than me, and we were like tape trading friends for a little while there <laughs> when I was working at a record store. And um, No, I remember we went to go see Scream, and at a certain point in the, the movie, I think we just kind of turned to each other and we were like this is horrible and I think we almost just had a continual conversation in the back row of the theater for the rest of the minute so talking about Italian horror films and stuff hmm. so um, no I'm not sure I really like got back into um, contemporary horror until like I said 2000-2001 when I was looking at um, you know one-offs like Ginger Snaps and then also a lot of horror that was coming out of Japan and South Korea at the time but um, Evil Dead Trap was uh, yeah, I love that movie. You know the first rumblings of, of uh, Italian horror cinema I remember sort of for myself. Japanese, Japanese I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I like that movie a lot. Um, no, I mean in terms of North American horror, uh, I, I think you're basically lucky if you get one good horror film to come out of the continent of North America a year, and that's it. <laughs> Forever um, or now? Or? No, no, no. Each year now. Each year. Oh no! You kidding me? Like in the seventies, you would get like you know fifty good ones that come out of North America. <laughs> no, I mean you know all these films that people um, gush over now. I just uh, what has happened to American filmmaking? I mean, for me, uh, you know, I. I I'm always measuring for your old man crank in these in these opinions. Yeah, I know. I, I, but yeah, I, there's I, a real I don't want dec- us to lapse too much into that, you know, dynamic because I don't. Again, you know me. I'm like very resistant to nostalgia and romanticizing, you know, the past. And I, you know, I, I think it's important to remain contemporary. But um, I mean, economically, there's there's something that's happened that I just I think has had to. You know, be what's caused this effect of, of the, the sort of diminishing of creativity in the American film genre in general. 
Well, that's possible, but I mean, you do still have occasional mainstream wide release theatrical breakouts like It Follows, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a good film. I don't think it's um, the classic that some people kind of made it out to be, but I mean, I think it's very solid. If that had come out in any other decade, I would have been very enthusiastic about that. Um, a lot of other stuff that's widely praised, I would not be. Uh, you know, I just went off on a Facebook rant yesterday about... Um, what is her name? The uh, Iranian British American woman that directed uh, Girl Walks Home Alone. Oh, I, I don't remember. I saw uh, the Anna film. Anna Lily Amapur. Um, yeah. You know, I, so I see work by her. I see work by, um, you know, Adam Wingard. I see work by. Uh, Ty West? Delaware's, okay. Delaware's up? Well, I know Ty West. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is, I mean, I haven't had any contact with him in years, but. Um, he used to come into Video Americaine in uh, the early 2000s. If you say, I, I always heard that you were sort of, you know, the uh, the wizard there. Is that not true? Are you denying that? No, I don't think that's true because, um, <laughs> no, at Video Americaine, at the time that I worked there from like 2001 or two until 2005, business had unfortunately been on, you know, decline the way physical video stores, you know, were at that point. And, um, you know, I mean, Vic was the owner there. Barry uh, owned the chain of Video Americaine stores. And, you know, I mean, they were both fantastic. I worked with a young woman there named Erin who, I mean, she was great. We lived together for a little while when I was living in Philly. And um, she was excellent. No, I wish that there had been um, more opportunity to be the wizard of anything. But I feel like that, that was at a point where... You know, business was starting to yeah. decline a little but bit. But people didn't come to you for your opinions. You weren't successful in underlining films that people should see there. You weren't a dominant presence at Video Americaine? No. <laughs> Do you no, me? no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I tried to be... Some people might see you that way. Maybe that's all we should leave here. I, I mean, I think that that was more the case, you know, because I was working there the whole time. I was also programming Danger After Dark for the yeah. film festival. But, you know, I mean, obviously for the film festival, I was up in Philly and for the video store, I was down here in Wilmington. And, yeah. you know, you would have thought that was the difference between Kansas and Hawaii, <laughs> Wilmington and Philly. I mean, I never thought that way, but I, there was never any, like, you know, cross breeding between yeah. those, those two pe- those two groups of people yeah so. uh, it must have been somewhat of a, a highlight to be able to introduce the, the number of films that you you did introduce people to in, in danger after dark I, I think under your under your uh, you know reign there uh, yeah. you did uh, the, the Canadian film about the the Christian cult uh, end of the line is that one of yours I don't think so oh. uh, well but you know something i you know i mean i programmed hundreds of films that's true so. survive survive style five I oh that was totally one of mine you. yeah um that was yeah. i mean i remember that going over as well as any film yeah. i saw go over Absolutely. within years that, there in the that theater. was like uh, we were talking about like you know the joy of like a communal experience viewing films and you know it's funny because i tend to disassociate the great communal experience I had watching films with anything I had to do with like programming them, you know, I mean, to me, it's all in the same bowl of soup and um, yeah, watching survive style five with an audience was definitely a highlight and um, seeing how people got that. I don't know if you were there, were you there when I think it was the first year that Eric did the Cinadelphia festival at Phil Mocha and he did that danger after dark retrospective. Oh no, I don't think I did see that yeah he did a like a danger after dark retrospective where he was like talking to me about you know what that series was like and then we had a 
surprise film um, after we had the conversation on stage and it was Survive Style 5. Oh, wow. Yeah, you also audience. were instrumental in bringing the, the Spanish director... Uh, Alex uh, Iglesias. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for a whole retrospective. and. Uh, well, we did this thing um, each year called the Phantasmagoria Award, which was kind of like a loosely defined, tenuous spinoff of Danger After Dark in some ways. And By so, the way, Danger After Dark, great name. I know you don't like. <laughs> I know you don't like the name. I, I was, it's a shame that this is a podcast <laughs> with no visual correlative because when it, you said that to me, I think you could see my face was like a slab of stone that was not reacting to that, and I was just but for a name that really brings together like the ideas of a number of genres rather than being like specific to something. I, yeah, I thought that was a, a very savvy commercial name for you to bring to that. <laughs> anyway, well, that's good. Anyway, <laughs> no, it was Travis you know, Danger After Dark Crawford. Uh, you know, it was the first year we did it. Um, Ray had already developed. Ray was the head of the festival yeah. for so many years, and um, he had already developed his own Action Asia program, which only ran that one year in two thousand one. So, you know, Danger After Dark was kind of a you know the first year it was sort of a smaller, limited adjunct to Action Asia. And we didn't have a name for it at all. And it was like the 11th hour. It was something where we were going to like go to press with the program guide. And, you know, it was like every day it was, what do you want to call it? What do you want to call it? What do you want to call it? I don't know. I'll think of something. I don't know. I'll think of something. And um, I don't even remember how that came. That was probably one of these 4 a.m. decisions. Or it was like, you know, in an email. I guess that's, we'll call it Danger Genius Strikes. But a great umbrella term that, 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 that captures, uh, you know. And I said, okay, we'll call it Danger After Dark. You know, after the fact, um, it sounded to me a lot like the title of a series that would be on Cinemax at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. You know, Sylvia Crystal and Jewel Shepard in, you know, and it would be like some maybe, maybe a collection of spy spoofs. That would be okay, too. But, you know, the weird thing is, like, I came up with that name, and then, like, a couple years after that, there was Toronto After Dark as a film festival. There was something After Dark, a horror film series that Lionsgate did in limited theatrical release. So I guess it, you know, was okay, but it was never my um, preference. It's funny because then I wound up, you know, many years later working for Ray on a video label. Well, not just video, they did theatrical too, artsploitation films. Mm-hmm. And I was like, artsploitation, that's a great name. And that was something Ray came up with. That was not me. Oh, yeah. So that was entirely his. Vanishing um, Waves? Vanishing Waves I've came out under heard that. that. I've heard about that film for years. I, I still haven't uh, captured it. What, what about that film really uh, seemed to, to, to catch people? That's the best film that artsploitation has done. Uh, I think that's one of the best science fiction films that's come out from any country in the last 20 well, what's, years. What's the premise? Where is it from? It's a co-production. It's mainly Lithuanian, but it's a co-production between Lithuania and France, uh, directed by, it's funny, I've known her for years, and I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of her name, Christina Bioseit, I think, um, in collaboration with her uh, French filmmaking partner, Bruno Samper. Um, It's about an experiment where uh, uh, a man goes into um, a laboratory setting to try to venture into the mind of a comatose female patient and discovers sort of a whole um, other world that she has going on in her mind at the time. 
And uh, yeah, that's a great film. We did. Well, I mean, we did a lot of films that I was really proud of during that time period. The Serbian film Clip, German film Combat Girls, Chilean film Hidden in the Woods, which the same director remade in America a little bit later. Um, what do you think bound all these films together in your mind as being able to be, all be under the art exploitation tag? Um, the sadly misguided illusion that we could convince people to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I no, I mean um, the fact that again, I mean the the name of the company. You know, when we talked about this at the beginning of the interview of the merging of exploitation films in terms of content and a more art house approach in terms of um, the style of filmmaking, you know, I, I thought was, uh, I don't want to say an entirely unique approach, but something that really separated these films from a lot of other stuff that was out there. You know, it wasn't trauma level shock value shtick. Yeah. And it wasn't um, very cold, clinical, detached, something that's only going to play in Rotterdam and Telluride you know, yeah. kind of approach, um, something that tried to, uh, merge the, uh, earthy and carnal with the cerebral. In a, in a way, it, it, when, when, you know, uh, these films you promoted in Danger to Dark and continued on with our exploitation and everything, it sort of brings together a niche that I, I might not have seen. And it made me think of Michael Weldon's psychotronic book. I remember, right. I remember when I first looked at that book, like Another. I would have never thought, fantastic seminal uh, text yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i would at the time i would blew my mind i would have never thought about putting together beach party movies and biker movies i was sort of aware of these as separate genres but the idea that all this genre film could be a singular thing was you know, what felt revolutionary about that book to me but also this idea of the the art film exploitation genre film hybrid is something I, I hadn't heard really heard anybody label before, but I realized that was this niche that was particularly interesting to me and had its own flavor in some way. Well, we talked about this earlier. I think it does sort of uh, appeal to the same, I mean, that's a terrible word, but like demographic that sort of views and is interested in film that is on the margin of the mainstream. You know, so you're looking at a, in some ways, you're looking at two polarized extremes, you know, something that's very um, visceral and something that's very created for, like, commercial exploitation reasons. And you're looking at something that's created for um, purely personal, auteur-driven reasons of expression. But when you find a way in which those two things intersect, um, I think in a way not to get too melodramatic here, but I think that sort of defines what's the most interesting thing about cinema is, you know, the collision between the commercial and the artistic, you know, and these are the most fascinating representations of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, at their best. In a way, that's what Hollywood was built on most, really. Right. And you look at films from the 70s, you know, that sort of new golden age of Hollywood, and that's where you see the greatest examples of those films. most excites you today what if there was an envelope that was going to arrive in the mail and have a 
DVD of a genre or artist or director or whatever. What, what, what's, what's getting you going now? I don't think there's any particular movement or genre or anything like that. I mean, I think in recent years, I've gravitated a lot towards Eastern European film uh, and Russian film, at least in terms of like contemporary stuff. Um, Does that stuff get any distribution here at all? And no, very, very little. Even yeah. most of the stuff I've written about for... I started writing for a London-based um, website called the Calvert Journal, which covers that stuff exclusively. It, I mean, it started out being about um, Russian culture, and they've expanded to Eastern European and Central Asian. I did a big article on them for um, new directors from Kazakhstan a while ago. Wow. But no, there's very, very little distribution for that stuff in the U.S. Um, How's film distribution in the U.S. doing these days, do you think? Not good. And this is something, this is a drum I've been beating for the past couple of years that, uh, you know, I think it's sad that, you know, there are so many different platforms now that are available um, and so many different releasing options but I don't think that uh, the films are getting out there. You know, it's it's a strange thing, but I think in some ways uh, distribution is narrower now in its focus than it was in the 80s. You know, I mean, I remember seeing films in theaters uh, from overseas in the 80s that I can't imagine would get any sort of release now, even on DVD, Blu-ray, or, uh, you know, platforms like Netflix or Fandor. Um, or Filmstruck, or you know, Hulu, whatever. So no, I, I don't. I feel like it's a there's you know kind of a range somewhat of countries when I look at like what's coming from uh, uh, what's playing at the Ritz locally in Philadelphia, right. but what's right. what's the sort of modern art film theater with whatever's left standing at this point. But it feels like they're they're all aimed at being very commercial. If it's a if it's a European film, it's a very you know romantic comedy. Or yeah, something. very easy to sell. In yeah, I mean, I, I you know I've made that you know joke before that you know they all seem to be um, you know Catherine Deneuve and Gerard Depardieu and you know a World War Two story about a blind baker who learns to play the violin and love again. You know, it's 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 like that kind of you know, and it, so you have a lot of those kinds of films, um, but I don't think you have. Um, most adventurous films from overseas really getting any sort of distribution in this country. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, um, Dogtooth, you know, is a Greek film that is now, you know, made quite a name for that director. You know, he's worked in English language films now and the um, lobster in recent exactly. Years. Yeah. yeah. And there are things that occasionally break out, but I, I don't, it's one in a million. You yeah, know, and yeah. I mean, if you watch films for programming or distribution, you see so many great films that just, you know, don't stand a chance, it seems like, unless is, there's a distributor. Is it the audience, right do you think? Or is it the distributors? Or are they too cautious? Is the audience too cautious? I think it's all intertwined. I mean, I think, yes, distributors are too cautious, but I, from an economic point of view, I can't necessarily fault them for that. There's a reason that they are, because there's not really... Um, a lot of avenues for income to be generated to even kind of break even. I mean, you know, you mentioned Vanishing Waves earlier. And, you know, I was working with Artsploitation when we distributed that. And that was a film that won a slew of awards at film festivals, genre and otherwise, you know, internationally. When we released that, it got, you know, largely rave reviews and um, 
commercially, you know, I mean, it wasn't a disaster or anything like that. And it was very well received. And, you know, I'm glad that we got it in theaters, but it was not, you know, it could have taken off and it didn't, you know. And, and I've seen other films like that where uh, they're just sort of non-starters, you know. So you can't blame distributors for being overly cautious if the market's just not there. Yeah, I, 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 you know, had that romantic notion maybe that like, wow, the quality of this film is just so undeniable. That's what's going to sell it. Is it's, it's, it's you know so good, but so good doesn't necessarily sell a product. Well, you know, I mean, it has an it has an influence. You know, I mean, it, you know, I mean, they're certainly um, related, but uh, no, it's not going to completely. I think the time of like a movie coming from out of nowhere. And, um, you know, like the film distribution equivalent of Mr. Smith goes to Washington is, is not really a model that works now anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. What are you looking forward to seeing in the, in the immediate future? What's one, what's one stocked on top of your VCR? Your VCR. On top of your VCR. <laughs> see what year wow. it is. Huh? Um, well, I mean, I'm working. What's spinning on your Laserdisc player? I'm what is that? <laughs> What are you firing up the A track to hear the soundtrack of? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I do work for Arrow now, so I get a lot of their releases. So, I mean, right now on top of the Blu-ray player, there are uh, special editions of Phenomena and Burp of the Crystal Plumage. And I can't really talk about what it is because they're not going to announce it for a couple of weeks, but I'm working on a special feature for a Dario Argento film that they're doing that's going to be announced in a little while, um, as well as some special features for George Romero set they're going to be announcing next month. Um but other than that, I mean, I still have industry accreditation, so I'm, like, catching up with uh, some of the films that were at Cannes last month that I wanted to see. Uh, the new Claire Denis film. Um, watched, I think I mentioned this earlier, a documentary called The Prince of Nothingwood uh, that I watched last night that I was very good about the filmmaker in Afghanistan. So um, pretty much just that kind of thing. I guess I should finally listen to that hell in the pacific blu-ray that comes out next week that i did the commentary track for with bill and i haven't listened to that yet. You, you've written about lee marvin before haven't you or i did i um, was he a special interest of yours or star <laughs> of hell in the pacific yeah yeah no I, I mean, Mifuni and uh, uh, maybe nobody else i yeah nobody else no um <laughs> I, went, a, I went through this period in uh sometime in the early mid-2000s i guess where i was like uh, for the most part i've only been interested in actresses and, you know, that's really like I would never see a film because of an actor, but I would see terrible films because of actresses. <laughs> and um, but I decided, all right, well, I was going to go back into, you know, we were talking about classic Hollywood and whether or not I ignored it or I decided I was going to go back and watch films by these sort of like classic Hollywood tough guy actors that I did really love. Lee Marvin, Robert Mitchum, who's the king, um, Robert Ryan. Um, William Holden um, and it was all done in conjunction with writing entries for that 501 Movie Stars book mm. that Stephen Schneider was editing that I was contributing entries to um, so I was doing quite a lot of watching their films at that time um, but yeah it was just sort of in conjunction with that um, but no I mean that's interesting because I mean you think about those actors and I probably would watch anything readily available by those people that I mentioned. Whereas, you know, I don't think, I think 
the American. Those, those actors you mentioned in particular, they're they're tough guys, but it, it does seem like they're 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 all tough guys who, who have a certain intelligence. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you look at American film actors like the ones that I mentioned, and I don't necessarily see contemporary equivalents to those. You know, I mean, I don't want to pick on you know Liam Hemsworth or Zac Efron <laughs> or Channing Tatum, but I mean, you know, you you put those guys up against. Lee Marvin and Robert Ryan and Robert Mitchum and it's like you know you got to be fucking kidding I me. We're making the the, the uh, making doing the math that, that Mitchum was like twenty seven or something when he made Out of the Past. Yeah, and uh, I guess he'd already been to the war or something. Well, you know? yeah, like yeah, yeah. A lot with him at that point. And uh, I talk about you know on the Hell in the Pacific commentary track that uh, you know Lee Marvin's best work was certainly after he had very traumatic experiences in World War Two. You know, and spent a long time in VA. Um, and yeah, and so, I mean, I don't envy the experiences those guys had, but there's a lot to be said for being an actor after you've had, being any kind of artist after you've had a substantial amount of real world, real life experience behind yeah. you, as opposed to going from, you know, dancing on the Disney Channel to <laughs> starring in Nicholas Winding Refn films. Yeah, one of my favorites, uh, Robert, Ryan, uh, Robert Ryan, I'm also... Robert Ryan fan. Yeah. But Robert Blake was on Robert Blake. talk shows and he was maybe for me the best talk show guest because he had incredible stories about Hollywood and you know growing up as a, a kid actor and everything. But he said I was ta- you know talking to young actors today and uh, you know they're basically just you know working out and taking tinctures yeah. <laughs> and getting coffee and he's like I'm not saying you have to be a prostitute to play a prostitute but you got to do something. Yeah. No, I mean I think no, I mean those guys actually had lives, you know, whereas now now, if you're working in a vacuum, yeah. you know, from the time you're a kid, I think it's very difficult to, I mean, you have no experience in the world. Yeah, you have no yeah. life what to draw upon. Yeah, exactly. From? You have nothing to draw upon. Yeah, that they snack services didn't come. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's uh, tough. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be Robert Blake, but, um, <laughs> you know, although I, it's a fascinating series of adult roles, actually, from Electric Glide and Blue all the way to Lost Highway, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. But, um, yeah. Do you have an opinion about about the his wife? Dying? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's a, certainly a a very curious occurrence that yeah. happened. Um, I, I, uh, I think he was probably involved, maybe. But uh, do you think you think he hired someone? Uh, Maybe, okay. <laughs> but I, but I I really try You're not w- under oath, Dan. No. I mean, it <laughs> In my mind, I don't want Robert Blake to hear this and to think bad of me because I really like him a lot. Uh, but uh, but I do. I yeah, somehow I don't think him, Spanky, and Alfalfa are going to be going in the truck like, gunning for you or anything anytime. In the future. Uh, but uh, I do think that. Uh, that I like to separate an artist from the from their work. You know, I, I always I always drop back to you know. Shakespeare might have been a complete prick, you know. Am I going to not watch any Shakespeare plays because of his, you know, personal uh, life? And I, I tend to think that, you know, the artist side is the, is the best side of a person, and I like to see the best side. Mm. There are some people whose whose actions have, have been so heinous that, you know, I've, I find myself against them, but they're very few. Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> and not even him, because I really right, love right, the right. early. It's like a Mel Gibson thing. Uh, I was thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's you know nowhere near as criminal, but I've always just found him so repellent as a as a person that it's really kept me from embracing. 
Well, he does seem like, I, I mean, you know, like a real sexist creep, you yeah. know, in a lot of ways. But um, G- Giving out a mind Kampf to people when he first arrived in Hollywood. Oh, I never was, heard about that. <laughs> yeah, Actually, the, he did that? Yeah, well, I think his father in oh, Austria. That can't be, that can't be true. Uh, I think it is. He well, gave out know. copies I've, of Mein Kampf when he this. arrived in Hollywood? Do you remember even in the 90s, he was trying to uh, get a film launched that was about a, a good German during the war and, uh, you know, that they were fighter pilot or something. That that tale has haunted him for for a while. Um, I'd have to look into that. <laughs> I, I I did not hear that he gave out copies of Mein Kampf when he was making Hercules in New York. Uh, yeah, Hercules in New York. I think to Arnold Stang, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean know. that's that's uh, wow. Okay. But but I mean it, it, I mean it. Something about I mean deeper than that I mean the, the arrogance and everything. Oh no 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 no! I mean I think that I think that you can see that quality in a lot of you know famous people though. Yeah you know? for sure. So um, for sure. Are you an are you a Schwarzenegger fan? No, I couldn't care. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry if that seemed like I was like defending him or something. I, I nice action hero meant a lot to you. No, I um, well I mean he's been in good movies. Well wait, give me a second. I mean other than the Terminator stuff, um, maybe <laughs> not. <laughs> I mean, I love the Terminator films. Junior, maybe? You like Twins, maybe? No, yeah. no. But there's got to be something else, right? I mean, come on. Stay um, Hungry? I've never seen that, Very believe good. it or not. Yeah, yeah no, I've heard that. Um, but no, I've never caught that for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> the last place I wanted to drag this was an analysis of like, Arnold Schwarzenegger's yeah, I mean, career. you got to come up with something, because I don't want to end on that note. <laughs> he's, not the, he's not the Lee Marvin of our time. no. Robert Ryan, I knew his daughter uh, in, in San Francisco uh, from the most ridiculous of circumstances. She was in the video in the record store buying something, and she gave me her credit card, Lisa Ryan. And uh, I said, any relation to the great Robert Ryan? And she's like, that's my father. That's very weird that you would say that. Well, that is weird that you would say that because it's not like Ryan is an uncommon name or anything. No, I almost said Irene Ryan from the Beverly Hillbillies. But I love, <laughs> I love Robert Ryan. I would yeah. love to talk to anybody about Robert Ryan. And I, it was just, you know, having a nice conversation. But we became friends after that. And, oh, uh, such a great actor. Yeah, yeah. On it, Dangerous it, Ground is, is one of my favorite films. Yeah, and, and talking about the intelligence. I mean, that's yeah, what's almost always underlying yeah. that character character is this anger uh, that's uh, almost seems like a like a, a uh, to me he always reads as like an, a, 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 an idealist who has lost faith in a way there's something that's really bitter and angry about him did he have any late career because um, you know I'm thinking about William Holden and Network and I'm you know and thinking about of course the Wild Bunch yeah, you yeah. know, and, and did he have any? Did Ryan have any like late career kind of revivals? You know, like some role that I'm. I don't think the attention really came to him. He's very good in the outfit. Uh, I haven't the, seen that the film with the, with the Robert Duvall and um, Judon Baker as hitmen. Um, he's uh, probably the the most prestigious thing he did towards the end was the. Uh, Frankenheimer adaptation of the Iceman cometh. Oh, I did see that. In fact, I actually wrote about that recently because I did the. Um with Lee Marvin. Yeah. Well, I did the booklet essay for uh, Frankenheimer film Ronin that Era is mm. putting out. Yeah. And I was talking about uh, like later Frankenheimer in terms of at a certain point, you know, there wasn't too much in his later career to really admire. And that being the exception to the role. Dead Bang and uh, Reindeer Games, I guess, towards the end. Uh, that was his final film. Ronin yeah, yeah. was the... Uh, Penultimate. That's a sharp piece of work, though. I, I really liked Ronan. Oh, I did too. I yeah. mean, you know, I, that's why I said I would go ahead and do the uh, the essay for it. I, I thought that was a very good late career thing for yeah. him. Yeah. Are there any Are there any modern young actors you do like? Oh God, I'm sure there are. I mean, I don't want to be um, 
I don't know, name some people. And I, uh, I've sort of, I kind of feel like looking for that sort of masculine type that it's really hard to find an American that, that exudes that American man that uh, when there is those sort of naturally, you know, sort of masculine sort of figures, they're often Australian actors. Well, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of, um, not a lot of, but there are some actors where I like the work that they've chosen and the directors that they've opted to work with, even if I don't necessarily care for them that much. And, you know, I made a dig at a Ryan Gosling earlier, yeah, but yeah. I would put him in that category. I mean, he doesn't necessarily do anything for me. But he picks uh, smart roles. But he, he picks smart roles and he's done good work, you know. Yeah. And um, and I mean, in terms of, you know, the other side of uh, the gender thing, I mean, I do really like Michelle Williams. Mm-hmm. So that maybe not be fair to bring her up, but more than liking her, I like the films that she chooses and, you know, the directors that she chooses to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes, you know, you look at people like that and think, well, they seem very intelligent and very cinema literate in you know the uh decisions that they make about the careers but i don't necessarily care about watching ryan gosling on screen i don't find him like charismatic no. the way you know we were talking about mitchum or ryan or you know marvin or any of those you know actors michael shannon's one of those uh, names that comes up a lot as someone who plays a lot of eccentric extreme characters he's extremely prolific though i think he did like 14 films last year or something (laughs) like i mean something insane like that and you know i mean and i'm sure there are great films in there but you know there's also batman versus superman i I kind of think too that like you only have so many times that you can come on screen and make an impression and be lost in a character and and at a certain point you become such a, a a recognized presence that you almost carry too much with you and uh, somebody like him being in 14 films, like, we might be able to, we might get a little too much of Michael Shannon. Well, I don't know whether his, you know, ideal career trajectory would lean more towards Dustin Hoffman or Dick Miller, you know? I mean, so <laughs> I, yeah, it depends on whether he wants to do leading man roles or whether he, yeah. you know, I, I would be happy with seeing him as a ubiquitous wall-eyed character presence yeah, in film yeah. after film. Having, having the career Peter Lorre never got to have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, doing like these intense little walk-ons, that, that would be fine with me, but you do kind of wish that he had... Speaking of Friedkin earlier, did you see Bug? Yes. Yeah. I love that film. Yeah, yeah. We were all surprised. Uh, it was, uh, that was the, one of my favorite Friedkin films. Yeah, sure. yeah. Killer Joe, you know, seemed like it was trying to work the same realm of being this shocking thing I but i was it, not a fan of that not one. A, i wasn't a fan either no i thought tried a little too hard did you see the, the recent schrader film uh, doggy dog i think it's called uh no i did not i was curious but um that definitely seems like it's trying to work that same sort of uh gothic exploitation shock kind of thing in it as well it was definitely tarantino sort of influence yeah i mean i probably would have checked it out but the screenplay was written by someone that i used to know on facebook who i now wouldn't mind seeing under the wheel of a truck so i decided i you know, thought i could safely avoid that one you can check out that name on imdb I yeah. Guess. yeah knock yourself out <laughs> You're right there, Camille. I think I. <laughs> um, shall we? Shall we wrap this up? Sure, sure. Uh, well, well, Travis, thank you so much for uh, standing by me while I led you through this rambling uh, discussion. Again, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure, Dan. Uh, thanks. One, two, three, four. That's it for today's Fun to Know podcast. Thanks to Travis Crawford for such a relaxed and amusing conversation. 
Check out the Calvert Journal and the latest releases from Arrow Films for his film writing. And best of luck to Travis as he locates to Alabama to enrich the local film culture there, no doubt. As for me, you can check out my writing on film at Falker.com. That's P-H-A-W-K-E-R.com. Look out for the class I'll be teaching, Musicians versus the State, at Fleischer Arts Memorial this fall. Hear me spinning jazz at WPRB Princeton, Mondays, 11 a.m. EST to 2 p.m., both over the air and at WPRB.com. And I hope you'll return back for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.